swept the lantern in a wide semicircle. Shadows moved and lurched. Flickering light touched the stones underfoot and brushed against a long procession of granite pillars that marched ahead, two by two, into the dark. Between the pillars, the dead sat on their stone thrones against the walls, backs against the sepulchers that contain their mortal remains. She is down at the end, with Father and Brandon. He led the way between the pillars, and Robert followed wordlessly, shivering in the subterranean chill. It was always cold down here. Their footsteps rang off the stones and echoed in the vault overhead as they walked among the dead of House Stark. The lords of Winterfell watched them pass. Their likenesses were carved into the stones that sealed the tombs. In long rows they sat, blind eyes staring out into eternal darkness, while great stone direwolves curled around their feet. The shifting shadows made the stone figures seem to stir as the living passed by. George R. Martin is a gardener, as we well know. He plants the seeds and sees what grows. That dichotomy indicates there are seeds and sprouts, while the seeds represent his original plants. Some of those seeds never actually sprouted, while others grew far larger, meaning more important, than George originally intended for them. The Crypts of Winterfell was itself one of those seeds, and it's one that's particularly grown, and it's become entangled with many other plot lines, while becoming even more mysterious all the while. Furthermore, since he originally planned only three novels, the early chapters really pack a punch with what he had in mind with the first elements of the series. So the Crips were one of those, one of those original elements, one of those original seeds. And it starts in Ned's first chapter. Ned and Robert exchange one line each before the Crips are introduced. The efficiency by George R. R. Martin's on display here. Within a few paragraphs, Ned and Robert have gone down to kick off a central mystery of the story, another seed, you could say, by visiting the statue of Lyanna. The reader notes their shared sadness, of course, without realizing that the two of them are going to join her in death by the end of the book. Immediately, we have themes of identity that will remain throughout, taking place in the crypts, a place that sets a creepy but reverent tone while simultaneously communicating how old the ancient line of the Starks of Winterfell is. Following Ned, other point of views take us down there as well, both physically and in dreams. They're a part of the story from start to where we are now. And given that they come up fairly major near the end of A Dance with Dragons, we can expect the crypts to continue to be important, both symbolically and as a physical location where boy green seers and legendary wildling raider kings can hide amongst dead Starks wrought in stone. So hello and welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast. You know the drill. It's the podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. Very little mention of HBO's Game of Thrones today. This is a 99% book topic only episode, though we are going to talk about the way HBO made the crypts look a little bit. And that's about it. So we're glad to have you back here. It's our first script episode in a little while since the Blackfish episode. A couple of announcements before we get into the meat of the matter. First up, I want to mention our new Facebook group. It's for History of Westeros people only, whether you're a listener or a watcher. The idea is to build more community and to build friendships and just to hang out and have a good time and to have a place where we can reach more of y'all with our announcements and what we're doing and where we're going to be if we're going to conventions and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of value to that, and we've had some generous people volunteer to be admins of this new group. You can find the link here on the screen. Or if you're listening, 
Just go to the group's page on Facebook and search for History of Westeros, and you should be able to find it. One of the ways we're curating it is to have questions that only History of Westeros people would know. So that way we keep out trolls and randoms and bots and all that. So it's a nicely curated environment where it's just people that are wanting to talk about Song of Ice and Fire in a fun environment. Speaking of community and conventions, use the promo code HISTORY to get $5 off your ticket purchase for Con of Thrones or Ice and Fire Con. This code is probably good past the year 2017 because we expect to be going to both of these cons for the foreseeable future every year. History of Westeros has joined the Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a collective of independent podcasts who work together to make each other stronger. Every show on Agora is highly curated. I've listened to quite a few Agora shows myself before joining the network, and I recommend them. Each month, Agora features a different member of their podcast network, although it just so happens that this month is the exception. As independent podcasters, we have limited opportunities for corporate sponsorships. So if you're interested in advertising with Agora and want to support independent podcasters, check out agorapodcastnetwork.com. The Crips of Winterfell is our second Patreon voters episode of the year. A couple of times a year, we provide a ballot to patrons who have chosen the pledge level that includes voting rights, and this was the most recent episode chosen. Past episodes chosen include Joanna Lannister, Septon Barth, The Tragedy of Summerhall, and quite a few others. They're some of my favorite episodes. If you're interested in learning more, go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Patreon link in the right sidebar. Speaking of patrons, thanks to Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, as well as our Dragon Rider patrons. Oh-ho, what have we here? New artwork for Mazala Cartho. Lord Mark of House Joseph, the snow in Winterfell. Here's your white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons, looking a bit older and a lot more fierce. Thanks to Luke Fitzsimmons for the art. Also thanks to Tolanis the Talon, king of Gagasos, writer of Tolarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. And Jinx of House Lier, green queen of the Rainwood. Rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Thanks for being patient with us while we take care of business and all the announcements. Now let's go. And by go, I mean go down, down into the crypts and back in time. Winterfell, then and now. 10,000 years ago, or so we're told, was the Age of Heroes, an era that featured legendary figures from whom houses great and small proudly trace their descent. One of the most famous of these figures is Brandon, or Bran, the Builder, who supposedly raised the Wall and Winterfell, and somehow Storm's End as well, we're told. I don't know how he did that, but they say he had the aid of giants. That might have helped a lot. And this all took place shortly after the Long Night ended. The Wall and Winterfell both, as we know through records and physical evidence, have changed considerably over the years. This lack of continuity both illuminates and confuses certain aspects of their original structure. With the wall, it's fairly straightforward. Lord commanders over the years have added height to it, and occasionally there's been some shuffling around over which castles are used, with maybe a new one being built from time to time. But with Winterfell, it's a bit more complicated. The First Keep The World of Ice and Fire The castle itself is peculiar in that the Starks did not level the ground when laying down the foundations and walls of the castle. Very likely, this reveals that the castle was built in pieces over the years rather than being planned as a single structure. Some scholars suspect that it was once a complex of linked ring forts, though the centuries have eradicated almost all evidence of this. Over the years, at least two different walls 
some number of new keeps and new towers and buildings have gone up in the Winterfell Castle complex. And it gradually became what it is today. We're interested in the oldest parts, though. And the oldest part of Winterfell is said to be the first keep. Though even that has been proven by a certain Maester Kennet to be from the post-Andal era. So there's apparently even older structures there that maybe are gone, have been built over. Doesn't matter. Regardless, the first keep is very old and may have been built, like I said, in place of previous older structures in the same spot, maybe even. Perhaps a certain King Brandon ordered a keep built by his great-grandfather, King Brandon, torn down because his son, Prince Brandon, didn't like it. It is a mostly abandoned part of Winterfell, which gives you an idea of how big the place is in general. I mean, a whole part of this castle that no one goes to? Well, they do go there, but just not very often, because a lot of important events have taken place there from the novels. Apparently the fact that it's a mostly abandoned spot means that that's where shady things are going to happen. <laughs> Everyone seems to think of it as a place to go to do sneaky or dirty deeds or things they're not supposed to do. For example, the first keep is where Jamie and Cersei sneak off, only to be caught by Bran, who was also doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, climbing. So this is a part of the castle where he was thrown as well, clearly. And close by this spot, four books later, Aenys Frey's squire is found dead in this nearby, and not long after that, little Walder Frey as well. Aenys' squire was found in the lichyard, where the ancient servants of the Kings of Winter were buried and apparently still are from time to time. The Game of Thrones, Bran 5. Beneath the shadow of the first keep was an ancient lichyard, its headstone spotted with pale lichen, where the old kings of winter had laid their faithful servants. It was there they buried Lady, while her brothers stalked between the graves like restless shadows. She had gone south, and only her bones had returned. And near that ancient lichyard lies our main subject, the Crypts of Winterfell where even more important plot points take place, with other mysteries still to be revealed, and fascinating history as well. It's all there. A Dance with Dragons, the Turncloak. Somewhere beneath us are the crypts where the old Stark kings sit in darkness. My men have not been able to find the way down into them. They have been through all the undercrofts and cellars, even the dungeons, but... The crypts cannot be accessed from the dungeons, my lady. As he takes her there, we get good description, and at the same time, the reasons why it's become harder to find. A dance with the dragons, the turncloak. The entrance to the crypts was in the oldest section of the castle, near the foot of the first keep, which had sat unused for hundreds of years. Ramsay had put it to the torch when he sacked Winterfell, and much of what had not burned had collapsed. Only a shell remained, one side open to the elements and filling up with snow. Rubble was strewn all about it. Great chunks of shattered masonry, burned beams, broken gargoyles. The falling snow had covered almost all of it, but part of one gargoyle still poked above the drift, its grotesque face snarling sightless at the sky. This isn't the first time Winterfell has fallen or been sacked. Heck, it's not even the first time it's fallen and been sacked by a Bolton. There's no evidence that the crypts have ever been desecrated, though. Perhaps even the Boltons have respect for such, or share some of the superstitions, or just don't care because... There's no loot down there. The Starks don't put treasure in the crypts. Like the other nearby parts of the ancient Winterfell castle complex, the crypts may not have always been what they are today. After all, if back then all they could do was build ring forts, it may have been a um, 
more basic version of the crypts originally, and they may not have been carving stone likenesses and delving so deep into the earth. It may have just been simpler at first. But surely the ancient Starks had a place to lay their dead to rest. And there's a good chance it's the same general spot, if not the exact same spot, just expanded over the years. I mean, burial sites don't usually get moved, especially when it's the same family occupying the same spot for thousands of years. Still, maybe some of the older Starks are buried somewhere else entirely. It's definitely possible. Now, part of all this is setting up the rest of the episode, but I also want to ask a few front questions now and along the way, such as, well, if Brandon the Builder made this place, is he buried there? Is he buried in the crypts? And if not, who is the oldest king down there? And where is Alpha Brandon buried if not in the crypts? Or if you prefer the idea that Brandon the Builder isn't a real person, more of an amalgam of different Starks from ancient times, well, maybe some of those Brandons are down there, or maybe a couple of them, maybe just one. Telecounting, I'm going to need a headcount on the number of Brandons in the crypts. Maybe we can figure this whole thing out. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, how would we know? I don't mean, will someone ever go down there and look? I mean, there aren't exactly, like, nameplates on these old kings. They might have a statue of Brandon the Builder and not know it's of Brandon the Builder. Bran, our Bran, the Green Seer in training, names them off. He knows their names because he's been taught their faces and deeds. But the day could come when no living person knows more than a handful. And it's possible the names and deeds of some of the more ancient statues have been lost along the way. Because what Bran knows, he's mostly learned from Maester Lewin. A dance with the dragons, the turncloak. So many, Lady Dustin said. Do you know their names? Once, but that was a long time ago. So this is a chilling sentiment to linger on. So let's do just that. <laughs> Bran himself sits hiding down there in darkness with his powers awakening. And the more that happens, the more he kind of loses his humanity. And with it, kind of his Stark identity. And it's kind of ironic, isn't it? He's losing his Starkness among the resting place of the Starks. In another way, he's, you know, becoming more a part of it. But anyway, more on that later. On a more practical level, maybe some of the tombs or statues have first men runes on them. That would have to be the ones weighed down deep because of the ones on the level we've seen, none of them have that. So maybe it used to be a tradition that faded, but you wouldn't think that tradition would fade. You'd think if they were marking them, they'd keep marking them. But still, it's possible. The highest level of crypts also creates another mystery, though. It's where the most recently dead Lord and King Starks are, which feels a bit backwards. You'd think the ancients would dig out a spot and then kind of go from there. But apparently they started from the bottom. Now they're here. Hmm. I dance with the dragons. The turncloak. My lady, Theon broke in. Here we are. The steps go further down, observed Lady Dustin. There are lower levels. Older. The lowest level is partly collapsed, I hear. I've never been down there. I mean, really, think about that. Wouldn't it seem more practical to make space below as they needed it? Expand as they went? To delve deeper as space was needed? But no, that's not what they did. They went down and then worked their way back up. I wonder why. It, maybe it was a superstitious reason or a practical reason. Maybe it's, it's cooler and darker down there. Maybe 
keeping the dead farther below the earth was a precaution against them rising in service of the others. I mean, we see similar sentiment expressed elsewhere in the design of the crypt, so it's worth considering that it's something to do with a superstition like that. Let's look deeper. Stone wolves, iron swords. A Game of Thrones, Eddard won. By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been Lord of Winterfell to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. The oldest had long ago rusted away to nothing, leaving only a few red stains where the metal had rested on stone. Ned wondered if that meant those ghosts were free to roam the castle now. He hoped not. The first lords of Winterfell had been men hard as the land they ruled. This custom of swords on laps is seen elsewhere among the living, and it's not just a Stark thing. We don't see it in any other crypts that we know of, although we don't know of a lot of other crypts, so it could be, you know, elsewhere in the north or something like that. But the general meaning among the living is this. A Game of Thrones, Bran Four. His sword was across his knees, the steel bare for all the world to see. Even Bran knew what it meant to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword. It, it means you are not welcome, as Rob was proclaiming to Tyrion, and as Tyrion clearly understood, and as the quote indicates, Bran got it too. One could see why someone would want to send that kind of message. Stay away to visitors when you're trying to rest eternally. But this isn't what they're saying. In the case of the Crips, they're, the Iron Sword is keeping the spirit locked in. So it's kind of the opposite. Instead of making a guest unwelcome, it's making the resident stay put. <laughs> but it is a similar concept, despite that. Theon and Lady Dustin also notice missing swords, along with Ned. And we know why that is. Bran and his friends took four of them, in addition to the ones that have rusted away. Of course, that wasn't the case when Ned saw them, but still, all the people who see this are bothered by it. Theon is bothered by it in particular, as he knows like we do, as we've just explained, why those swords are there to keep those spirits from becoming restless and becoming ghosts. And this falls into that it's been mentioned multiple times category that I love to harp on sometimes. So take note for later in the series and later in this episode that this has come up many times, which may mean it's very important, or at least important enough to come again, to be built upon. The direwolf statues, on the other hand, they're a bit more straightforward, since direwolves are on the Stark Banner and all. Maybe we should wonder why direwolves are on the Stark Banner in the first place, but that's really another topic. Either way, it fits to have the sigil of their house, you know, in the crypt with them. Though it also makes me wonder how many ancient Stark kings were skin changers with real direwolves, right? Rob was probably not the first. The World of Ice and Fire Chronicles found in the archives of the Night's Watch at the Nightfort, before it was abandoned, speak of the war for Sea Dragon Point, wherein the Starks brought down the Warg King and his inhuman allies, the Children of the Forest. When the Warg King's last redoubt fell, his sons were put to the sword, along with his beasts and green seers, whilst his daughters were taken as prizes by their conquerors. But there's more to this place than just the wolves and the swords and the mysteries around those. So let's start... Right at the start, the front door, the beginning, but on the inside. A Clash of Kings, Brand 7. The door to the crypts was made of ironwood. It was old and heavy and lay at a slant to the ground. Only one person could approach it at a time. Osha tried once more when she reached it, but Brand could see that it was not budging. We see the approach from the outside as well. When Theon shows Lady Dust in the entrance, they find that it's frozen and completely shut. They have to use an axe to pry it open to get it back there. 
Once inside, it's a winding staircase fit only for single file and very dark. These are details we'd already seen back in the first book, but George reminds us of it because it's been a while. It's easy to imagine the very well-lit HBO Crips of Winterfell, which overall, those were really well done. But the major difference is that the torches are just all over the place. Another difference is how easily it is to find the Crips in the show versus the books. But really, overall, the Crips are pretty well done um, in terms of how they look. But again, the torches, that's a pretty big difference. It's really dark down there in the books. Lyanna and Brandon got statues, as we all know, which doesn't actually break tradition, but is apparently really rare, or at least somewhat rare. We know of one other example. Artos the Implacable brother of Lord Willem. He has a statue, but was not Lord. He was maybe Regent or the like. Uh, Lord Willem died really young, and his son, Edwile, was also really young. Uh, way too young to rule, probably a toddler-ish age, so you could kind of see why the brother was de facto ruler. But this is just a theory. However, it's a certainty that Artos the Implacable was not a Lord, I actually got to ask George R. R. Martin that specifically at a Q&A. He was very clear on it. By the way, Edwile, this young lord who Artos may have uh, been regent for, was Ned's grandfather. So this wasn't that long ago. Apart from the exceptions like that, Starks are buried in tombs in the crypts, but without statues or direwolves or iron swords. A stone tomb suffices for them. So to say that again in a different way, every Stark is buried down there but only the lords or kings get statues and direwolves and iron swords. <laughs> a crypt in a fantasy realm, that's a good fit, right? It, it makes sense that there'd be crypts. But talk of other crypts and their use is almost completely lacking elsewhere in A Song of Ice and Fire and the extended material. To get a sense of how unique the Stark customs are, let's take a brief tour around Westeros to see what other regions and houses are doing. Burial Customs As it is in the real world, Westeros has burial customs that vary wherever you go. These traditions are, as far as we know, very ancient. Perhaps as old as the houses themselves, if not older in some cases, meaning the Age of Heroes. Although some houses are that old, dating back to the Age of Heroes. Some of the houses that began as Andal houses may have imported customs from ancient Andalos or began new ones. But most of the houses we found examples for are first men. So maybe we need some more information on Andal burial customs. Maybe one day we'll learn more about that. For now, let's look at the north and work our way south. One of the examples we have in the north is the Dreadfort. Roose Bolton mentions that his son Domerick's bones are buried beneath the Dreadfort, which might imply a tomb or even a crypt of some sort. It's not specific enough to be sure, but we know it's not, say, burning or putting him in a river, which, you know, we got that example. Uh, maybe the Boltons flay the skin off of their dead lords and drape it over their tombs. <laughs> I'd love to hear that. No, I wouldn't. Well, okay, yeah, I would. Let's do that. <laughs> we also hear of the first king buried in the Barrowlands, which he supposedly ruled over all the first men, or at least he claimed to. The Barrow's a pretty simple thing. It's a grave with a big mound on top, kind of to mark it. You know, it's a simplistic old grave. Lots of those exist in the real world. Not, you know, commonly done now, but in the ancient world they were. This area is, of course, dominated by Barrowton. The Barrowlands, Barrowton, of course. But we don't know if House Dustin, who rules Barrowton, 
has a tomb or if they do barrow things maybe they still just barrow tradition maybe they keep that going we don't know maybe it's something new we do know that lady barbary dustin remains upset that ned didn't bring her husband's bones back from dorn he was one of her seven companions but we don't know what she would have done with them had he brought them back the manderleys are a good segue to the rest of the south because they're in the north but they used to be in the south and so their burial traditions might be very south run but they may have maybe adapted some northern aspects to it but we don't know given that they used to be along a great river the mander and they were there for longer than they've been in the north there's a chance they do something like what say house tully does that's of course the body in a funeral boat set down the river then set aflame by arrow usually fired by the air but sometimes you need a little help from your uncle blackfish don't you Edmure? But we don't actually have confirmation that any other house in the Riverlands or anywhere does something like this. House Blackwood, they keep the old gods. They live in the Riverlands, but they still keep those old traditions. They bury family under their heart tree, which might be what some other northern families do. I would guess that's not the only case of something like this. Blackwood's probably not the only ones burying their, their dead under their heart tree. And this is what Lord Titus Blackwood says he intends for his son Lucas killed at the Red Wedding. That's how we know. Farther back in the Riverlands, meaning farther back in time, we have the example of King Christopher Mudd IV, whose stone sepulcher is out in the open and is noticed by Catelyn and Rob, appropriately enough, while they're discussing his heir, his will, right? So that's a nice little uh, combination of events there by George. The fact that it's stone is similar to the Starks, but that's really where the similarity ends. It's not underground, it's not in a tomb, you know, it's much different climate, all that stuff. And, of course, King Christopher Mudd, we know it's his tomb because there's writing on it, which, again, in the Stark crypts, we have no known examples of such. The dragon skulls, those kind of give off a crypt feel, don't they? It's a creepy room, it's dark, but that's just a basement, really, if we're getting into it. And Robert put them there, not the Targaryens. Otherwise, the Targaryens famously cremate their dead, though they do bury the ashes. Usually this is done on Dragonstone, but eventually they started doing it at the Red Keep. The Dothraki also burn their dead. Hmm, Daenerys kind of fit in nicely there. <laughs> and of course, they throw the Dothraki at the person's mount to their pyre. You know, kill, kill your horse and so they can ride with you in the Nightlands. Giscari apparently entomb honored dead in crypts below their manses, family manses in this cage, which is probably the closest example to House Stark we have. And that's neat because the Giscari being the closest example to the Starks? Huh. <laughs> Wouldn't have guessed that. And the term crypt, though, it appears nowhere in the world of Ice and Fire except in reference to the Starks. Now, seriously, you search crypt in the world of Ice and Fire, you will only find reference to the Starks. In A Song of Ice and Fire proper, you will find a couple other mentions, but they're very vague and not specifically related to any other house, except in the case of the Giscari here. So it might be that crypts are pretty rare. I mean, they're kind of expensive. You got to build them. Maybe there's not that much to do to maintain them, but it's a lot cheaper to just send them down a boat and let them on fire, right? I mean, that has got to be part of it. But the bottom line is that most of the regions and houses, we don't actually know what their burial customs are. Many of the other regions, we just simply don't know. There's a wide variety of possibilities, and most of them we have no idea about. A house like the Royces might have crypts, too, given they're holding to many first-man traditions. 
In Dorn, I can imagine a colorful variety of possibilities given how disparate the kingdoms were for so long. The Sandy Dornishmen probably have different burial customs than the Stony Dornishmen. I mean, one lives in deserts, the other lives in mountains. And the orphans of the green blood who live along the river probably have some sort of river custom, right? So maybe it's even like the Tullys, who knows? Maybe it's entirely different. The Lannisters also seem to have a tradition similar to the Starks as befits a house living inside a giant mountain. They too inter their dead deep within the rock in a place called the Hall of Heroes. Unlike the Stark crypts, which we mentioned weren't worth robbing, the Hall of Heroes is like full of loot. Each dead Lannister is buried in their gilded armor with their gilded sword. Just remember what Tywin's incredible battle dress looked like with his giant gold. They're buried with all that. So just imagine one torch in there, probably just the whole room probably explodes in reflection and shine. It's probably pretty spectacular. It seems likely other houses with their seat in or partially in a mountain would do something like this without all the wealth, probably not so much gold and bling. <laughs> but even in the case of the Lannisters, we don't hear of stone likenesses being carved. That's something we see nowhere else. Christopher's tomb, as I said, is worn down because it lay outside exposed to the elements. The kings of winter are deep in earth without any elements to contend with. Now, depending on the skill of the stonemason, there are faces in the crypts of Winterfell that are accurate depictions of those kings in life and remain so despite so many years having passed since their making because of the nice climate-controlled, <laughs> element-free environment down there below the earth. A Game of Thrones, Brand 7. They were the kings in the north for thousands of years, Maester Lewin said, lifting the torch high so the light shone on the stone faces. Some were hairy and bearded, shaggy men, fierce as the wolves that crouched by their feet. Others were shaved clean, their features gaunt and sharp-edged as the iron longswords across their laps. Hard men for a hard time. I see part of the evidence for that is... Sharp-edged features, it says. A visual record of kings gone so long ago. And that's part of why we can be pretty sure these are fairly accurate representations, because it says sharp-edged, meaning you know, they haven't been worn down. Bran and his family know what their great-great-times-20 grandfather looked like in a medieval setting without magic or portraits, or any of that. It's these stone likenesses. It's pretty cool. That's pretty hard to do. Very few of us in the real world know what our ancestors that long ago looked like, unless you're related to, you know, a king or, you know, someone else who had a stone statue made. Maybe you're related to Julius Caesar and have a Julius Caesar bust at your house. But <laughs> in that, other than the examples like that, it's pretty hard to have uh, a picture of someone that ancient or a likeness. The Tullys... Feed theirs to the fishes. The Targaryens reduce theirs to ash. But how Stark remembers. It's all in line with that northern attitude of remembering and keeping this record. It's an old tradition. And it's paid off. For us. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt While archaeology tells us a lot about the First Keep and other aspects of Winterfell, much of the rest is a matter of legend. The largest share perhaps goes to stories that are rooted in between. They have truth and hard evidence, but they're spiced with legend and rumor. A whole section of these types of stories involve or at least relate to the Crypts of Winterfell. Furnaces of the World The World of Ice and Fire 
Hot springs, such as the one beneath Winterfell, have been shown to be heated by the furnaces of the world, the same fires that made the Fourteen Flames or the Smoking Mountain of Dragonstone. The hot springs are a chief reason this site was chosen for Winterfell in the first place, and that bears little explanation, right? Endless hot water in a place that gets really, perhaps deathly cold? Yes, please. <laughs> of course we want that. There may have been other reasons why Winterfell is where it is. In fact, there probably are, but the hot springs make it particularly choice. That had to be high on the list. The proximity to this natural heat is not unlikely to affect the crypts a little, though if there was a direct connection, it would probably be warm in there, and it's not. And it's not what you want in a crypt anyway. You don't want heat and moisture. You want cold and dry, and that does seem to be what the crypts are, as well as consistent. A dance with the dragons, the turncloak. He had always thought of the crypts as cold, and so they seemed in summer, but now as they descended, the air grew warmer. Not warm, never warm, but warmer than above. Down there below the earth, it would seem, the chill was constant, unchanging. That's why I call them climate-controlled. <laughs> and that's sweet. So am I saying that things are well-preserved down there? The statues being well-preserved is a good thing. I'm not sure about the bodies being well-preserved is a good thing. Although the ones that are truly, truly ancient, there's probably nothing there despite that. But anyway, it's a deeper statement on how the balance of ice and fire can play out. It's pretty cool. Despite the natural explanation for the heat, the average small folk hasn't heard it or prefers the other tale, which is, quote, The small folk of Winterfell and the winter town have been known to claim that the springs are heated by the breath of a dragon that sleeps beneath the castle. Sounds a bit far-fetched, but let's keep an open mind. Take a closer look. Sleeping Dragon a clash of kings, Bran Seven. He padded over dry needles and brown leaves to the edge of the wood where the pines grew thin. Beyond the open fields, he could see the great piles of manrock stark against the swirling flames. The wind blew hot and rich with the smell of burnt meat so strong he began to slaver. Yet as one smell drew them onward, others warned them back. He sniffed at the drifting smoke. Men, many men, many horses, and fire, fire, fire. No smell was more dangerous, not even the hard, cold smell of iron, the stuff of man-claws and hard skin. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great-winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Beneath the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. That line referring to great-winged snake has been the source of many a theory, and we've been seeing them since Clash of Kings was published, which was 1998. So between then and about 2001, a lot of people predicted we'd see this dragon in A Storm of Swords. That has since come and gone, <laughs> but we're still seeing dragon under Winterfell theories. Since George R. R. Martin uses subtle language, this line, as Team Bran emerges from hiding the crypts is considered additional evidence. A clash of kings, Bran Seven. We made noise enough to wake a dragon, Osha said, but there's no one come. The castle's dead and burned just as Bran dreamed, but we had best- She broke off suddenly at a noise behind them and whirled with her spear at the ready. But me, I, I struggle with the idea because we've had three books since the Clash of Kings and, and if there was a dragon loose in the north, wouldn't we have heard of it by now? Well, defenders of related theories say, Aziz, why should we assume that? Isn't it possible the dragon is shy and just made his lair far from humanity? This is the north, after all, a huge region without a huge amount of people. So even if some people did see it, maybe it wasn't a lot of people, and that would make sense. And maybe those few people that did see it, no one believed them. That I could believe. We even have an example 
in The Princess and the Queen of a very shy dragon who avoided humans. His name was the Grey Ghost. So we do know this personality type exists among George R. R. Martin's dragons. I remain skeptical, but still, you know, there, there, is, um, there is a possibility here. And if he didn't see a dragon, what did Summer see then? To understand this, we have to take note that basically everything we see through a direwolf POV is metaphor. In that quote just now, a castle is referred to as a pile of man rock and later great gray cliffs, while iron weapons are the stuff of man claws. So everything is kind of described in this metaphorical like animal mind sort of way. So it's kind of hard to assume it was a real winged serpent, especially because it vanished in the time it took him to bare his teeth, which is like basically the blink of an eye. I mean, if it vanishes like that, it's not a dragon. Unless it's some new kind of dragon that can, you know, become invisible. <laughs> there wasn't something flying off. There wasn't a shape visible in the sky. So you can see why I'm skeptical. That said, another reason these theories have lingered is that George R. R. Martin himself hasn't exactly stopped pouring ice, I mean fuel, on the fire. No mention of a dragon in the north during A Storm of Swords, A Feast for Crows, or A Dance of Dragons. But in the world of Ice and Fire, which is the most recent of these books, even though it's not part of the main series, he says this. The world of ice and fire. We can dismiss Mushroom's claim in his testimony that the dragon Vermax left a clutch of eggs somewhere in the depths of Winterfell's crypts, where the waters of the hot springs run close to the walls while his rider treated with Cregan Stark at the start of the Dance of the Dragons. As Archmaester Gildane notes in his fragmentary history, there is no record that Vermax ever laid so much as a single egg. Mushroom is an interesting character. Some people in the fandom trust most of what he has to say, while others trust a lot of it. I'm personally kind of in the middle. I'd say a lot of what he has to say is accurate. And it would be too much of a tangent to go into the ins and outs of all that. I'll just say that he's a mixed bag and leave it at that. In this case, I side with the Archmaester for sure, because for one thing, Mushroom wasn't even there. He is writing this secondhand. He maybe Prince Jerry's told him this. But he was definitely not there for the conference. Prince Jacarys flew to Winterfell on his dragon, didn't bring his dwarf jester with him. But it goes farther than that, my skepticism. The, the crypts have a narrow staircase. We see people walking single file. Vermax was not huge, but neither was he small. I kind of doubt he could even fit through the door. Bran had to crouch to not hit his head on the ceiling when riding on Hodor's back. So there's no room for a dragon unless it's really young, and really young dragons can't be ridden. So I, I just don't, yeah. And on top of that, just don't you think it would be really odd? Why would a dragon want to be down there? Or why would Prince Jacarys want his dragon down there? Why, while we talk about whose side you're going to take in this upcoming civil war, can my dragon go down and hang out in your crypts for a while? What? <laughs> it just, it's weird, right? Why, why would a dragon want to be there? Why would someone want him there? How would this come about? It's just all very strange. The meeting between Prince Jace and Lord Cregan itself is important too, as it was given a very conspicuous name, the Pact of Ice and Fire. The promise was that their families would intermarry. The notion of a Targaryen-Stark marriage being called a something of ice and fire is pretty big, right? It's certainly noteworthy. And some people say the world book is pointless. Come on now. But Prince Jace's faction lost, and the Pact of Ice and Fire went down with them. Lord Cregan himself was not beaten, though, and we'll come back to him later. As unlikely as it is that Vermax went down into the crypts and laid eggs, 
An unhatched egg is more plausible, a lot more plausible than the hatched one heating the castle and the water. <laughs> Dragons are magical creatures, but they're not so magical that they can survive underground in a crypt without food for about, say, 17 decades or 10,000 years, you know, hundreds of decades. Take your pick. Perhaps the tale is just off on a few details, though. For being more charitable, we can say that maybe some of these details that I'm picking at aren't accurate. And they're just how the story was told. So if they're not really aspects of the original story as it really happened, picking them apart doesn't actually pick apart the story. So maybe we should reconsider this just a little bit. Maybe this wasn't in the crypts. Maybe Jacarius's dragon Vermax laid eggs in the north, but somewhere else. But what would the point of that be? An egg in the crypts would be meaningful to John and to the reader finding it there. If it's just out there in the wilderness or something, well, that would be cool, but it wouldn't really have literary meaning. It would just be, hey, there's another dragon out there or an egg out there, but it wouldn't tie to John at all unless it's in the crypt. So a literal dragon beneath Winterfell is one thing, but a figurative one is another matter. And this is where Jon Snow's dragon heritage really comes up big. Because some people think there's a physical clue in the crypts that will reveal or help reveal his heritage to him, while others think that the secret in the crypts related to him is his identity and his heritage, or at least something to do with that. To get at that, we're going to have to go to a story within the story. Bran and the Bards The story of Bale the Bard is a massive moment in A Song of Ice and Fire, which also serves as reason number 2098 or so, why you need to read and reread these books. For example, if you didn't fully grasp Rhaegar and Lyanna as Jon's parents, and most of us didn't the first time through, self-included, Bale the Bard is going to meet a heck of a lot less. That's because Bale the Bard's story references many key elements of other central mysteries. So if you're not tuned into those other central mysteries, the point of Bale the Bard's legend will go right over your head. I'm not going to repeat the whole story because it's a bit too long to quote, but let's get into the key elements, which are Bale sneaks into Winterfell, disguised as a singer, wins acclaim for his musical skills. Allowed to name his own reward, he says he wants the fairest flower in the gardens, a blue rose. But really, he's referring to Lord Stark's only child. It's a metaphor. A daughter whom he apparently runs off with. See what I mean? If you didn't catch the significance of the Blue Rose early on, and full disclosure, I did not, a major part of this legend will pass notice. Okay, Lyanna, a daughter of Winterfell, and her love for Blue Roses, compared to this unnamed daughter of Winterfell, herself a proxy for a Blue Rose, wrapped up in a tale about hidden heritage and different bloodlines. Pretty big. It's a wow moment. And since Ygritte tells this story before it's revealed that Bran and company are hiding in the crypts, you don't get the full effect of that either. And to top it all off, this Lord Stark whose daughter goes off with Bale, obviously his name is Brandon. <laughs> so the idea that the Starks have wildling blood, that by extension Jon has blood he didn't know about, well, then he's in for even more surprises than we thought. This is kind of a setup for him, in a sense. This is the first surprise about his heritage that he's gotten. And there's going to be some much bigger ones later down the line. I'm sure you know. It's a huge moment to sort of herald in future huge moments about John's heritage. It's going to be a huge moment for other people, too. I mean, John's not going to be the only one deeply impacted by the truth of his parentage. Whoever else learns it, especially those people in his family, whoever's alive then are going to be like, whoa, that changes a lot of things. 
of all the Starks he thinks of as half-siblings, Bran is the one who has come closest to this mystery. And right on point for this episode, he's come close to it in the crypts. Because there are reminders. A Game of Thrones, Bran 7. They were almost at the end now, and Bran felt a sadness creeping over him. And there's my grandfather, Lord Rickard, who was beheaded by Mad King Ares. His daughter Lyanna and his son Brandon are in the tombs beside him. Not me, another Brandon, my father's brother. They're not supposed to have statues. That's only for the lords and the kings. But my father loved them so much, he had them done. The maid's a fair one, Osha said. Robert was betrothed to marry her, but Prince Rhaegar carried her off and raped her, Bran explained. Robert fought a war to win her back. He killed Rhaegar on the trident with his hammer, but Lyanna died and he never got her back at all. There's a lot to unpack in this quote. First of all, something simple. Bran thinks his grandfather was beheaded instead of the more awful truth, and that he believes Rhaegar raped Lyanna instead of the less awful truth. <laughs> this is also similar to the Bale story where everyone thought he kidnapped and raped Lord Stark's daughter. But just like Lyanna, there was no rape at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. In both of these cases, the two couples were in love. To make it even more clear how that song of Bale is important, it comes back in A Dance with Dragons. The crypts, some of Bale's tactics, and the themes of identity. Not just the basics. Instead of Starks going in there, though, this time we see what it's like for outsiders, through Theon's point of view with Lady Dustin. Add to that, Mance comes back to Winterfell and pretends to be a singer, and calls himself Abel, which is an anagram for Bale. A-B-E-L-B-A-E-L. Eh, tricky. <laughs> only that kind, of, that kind of blatant verbal trick only works in a, in a world where almost no one is literate. <laughs> Word games don't have the same obvious sense to them when, when no one can read, <laughs> or when very few people can read. So Corrin Halfan tells John that Mance used to sing the song of Bale, so we know Mance knows it. I think he mentions it too. Mance may have felt like he was walking in the footsteps of a legend straight from a song he himself loved. Another king beyond the wall is stealing another daughter of Winterfell. <laughs> How about that? Well, a fake daughter of Winterfell in this case. Still, close enough. <laughs> One of Mance's companions, the girl Holly, tries to get Theon to tell them where the crypts are. To hide down there like Bale did? Or do they think there's some secret way out? That's what Theon suspects, because from his perspective, they know he took Winterfell with very few men, so they assume it was done by stealth. It was kind of done by stealth, but it wasn't a secret passage. The truth is, Winterfell had hardly anybody in it, so he was able to take it with, you know, 20 men, because there was hardly anyone there to guard it, not even 20 men. But really, yeah, Theon doesn't know of secret ways. He's never heard the story of Bale the Bard either, which... He should. One day we hope he hears it because he'll realize that he himself fell for that trick. <laughs> the same trick. That quote rules hard, and I had no idea how hard until making this episode. I didn't realize how much meaning was packed into it. The thing is, Theon, it's both of those things. A wildling trick and the magic of the children of the forest. Osha's wildling trick is Bale the Bards, hiding in the crypts. Pretty straightforward. But not to Theon. The magic of the children comes in in leading the direwolves far away through warging. The huntsmen and Theon are both very confused when it dawns on them that they're following direwolf footprints without human footprints nearby. What that tells them is that the wolves have been far away from their humans. And that doesn't make sense. Because 
pets, dogs, wolves don't voluntarily go that far away from their humans. It's not like they can be told to do something. You can tell them, hey, you dog, go 20 miles away. <laughs> it doesn't work. So only skin changing works here. That's the only explanation. But of course, Theon and the Huntsman, they don't consider that possibility. Why would they? So they're just baffled. And of course, all this is happening while Bran is down in the darkness inside the crypts. Eh, there's not much else to do down there, right? May as well waken up your powers and try out skin changing. And hey, while you're at it, why not help out John with his too? John's first skin changer experience happens in the Clash of Kings, as far as we can tell. And it comes after Bran reaches out to him from within the darkness of the crypts. Not long after Bran himself has had his first skin changer experiences. Though we don't know this till later. We get this from John's point of view. Because in Clash, remember, we go a long time without a Bran chapter while George builds the suspense of what's happened to Bran and Rickon. I mean, we know they're alive because we see them get away. We know Theon's looking for them. But we don't know they're in the crypts until near the end of the book. Basically his last chapter, Bran 7. In retrospect, though, it makes sense, right? Grit is telling us and John about Bale hiding down there. And we soon find out that is what Bran was doing. It worked for Bale, worked for Bran. Makes me think. Maybe Rhaegar and Lyanna shouldn't have gone to the Tower of Joy. They should have hidden in the crypts of Winterfell. <laughs> An alternate theory to a dragon or a dragon egg in the crypt is a harp. Specifically, Rhaegar's harp. An alternate to that alternate is Lyanna's wedding cloak. That's another popular possibility. Which would serve a similar purpose to a harp, if found by John. Both of them, if they were found in, say, Lyanna's tomb would be pretty telling. It'd be like, John would have to figure out who this belongs to. It might lead him to, you know, the identity of his father or of his mother or both. But while this is kind of plausible in terms of, you know, more plausible than the dragon or the egg, there's still a big problem, which is Ned. Why would he do this? Why would he do something blatant like put an object in a crypt when he's so sworn to secrecy and just so intent on keeping that secret? Why would he leave clues? Why would he allow that to be there? He didn't even tell Catelyn the truth about John. And why would someone open Lyanna's tomb? That's another problem here. Why would anyone go looking in her tomb? Why would they open it up? Hey, let's wonder what's in Lyanna's tomb. <laughs> oh, look, a harp. Huh. I don't know. I, I don't buy that. But uh, I, so I think it's more, again, I think that this is an identity thing. What John is going to find in the crypts or what's going to be taught to him in the crypts or what he's going to learn down there, it's, it's related to identity. And I don't think objects are going to have a, a part to play other than maybe Lyanna's statue. But if it is down there, if there is something down there, it would be a very powerful symbol. And given that his dragon identity matters as much as his Stark identity, or even more, because he knows he's got Stark blood, even if he doesn't know which Stark he got it from, the dragon part is the bigger mystery. Either way, let's take looks. Ah, damn it. On the other hand, it would be a powerful symbol, and his dragon identity matters as much as his Stark identity. In a sense, it, it matters more, because that part's more of a mystery. He knows he's got Stark blood, even if he doesn't know which Stark he got it from. But the dragon stuff, he's got no idea. That, so in a sense, in a sense, it's more important, or at least it's more mysterious. Either way, let's take a look at themes of blood and belonging and family. Identity Crisis A Game of Thrones, Eddard One. God damn it, Ned. Did you have to bury her in a place like this? His voice was hoarse with remembered grief. She deserved more than darkness. She was a Stark of Winterfell, Ned said quietly. 
This is her place. As Bran sits in darkness among his ancestors, while his wolf remains above ground, a major awakening comes in the development of his powers. This leads to his journey beyond the wall and his training to become a green seer, all while most of the world believes him dead. Working into summer, to us readers, can feel like Stark-like. Because of the Stark Direwolf connection, obviously. But the more powerful he becomes, the less human he becomes. And that's why earlier I was talking about him losing his identity. Because he's becoming distant from his family and less of a person. So Brandon, bearing the most distinctly Stark name, is slowly losing that family identity. And ironically, it can be said to have begun in the crypts. A place for Starks only. This theme of being a Stark. Well, of course, we first think of John when that comes up. But he's far from the only one. Arya is becoming no one. Sansa is Elaine Stone. A lot of people are struggling with their Stark identity, even if it's just for disguise purposes, like in Elaine's case. For Stark eyes only. The Starks have a variety of feelings about the crypts, ranging from mildly creeped out to over it, to complex feelings, to... Rickon, who seems like a surprisingly fearless kid. I mean, he went down there by himself without any light. <laughs> I mean, he had his wolf with him, but still, damn. Though we don't get POVs on every Stark, the one who seemed most bothered by being down there was Ned. And it didn't seem to be just because it made him think of Lyanna, though that clearly had to be part of it. Bran himself says, quote, He had never feared the Crips. They were part of his home and who he was. And he had always known that one day he would lie here too. John, on the other hand, feels like he doesn't belong. A Stark feels comfortable, a Snow does not. Among the Stark-blooded, Bran and John are the two most associated with the Crips, though we get plenty from Ned. Rickon and Rob, of course, are not POVs, though they do appear in Arya's major moment regarding the Crips, which is a fond memory. A Game of Thrones, Arya 4. Suddenly, Arya remembered the Crypts at Winterfell. They were a lot scarier than this place, she told herself. She'd been just a little girl the first time she saw them. Her brother Rob had taken them down, her and Sansa and baby Bran, who'd been no bigger than Rickon was now. They'd only had one candle between them, and Bran's eyes had gotten as big as saucers as he stared at the stone faces of the kings of winter, with their wolves at their feet and their iron swords across their laps. Rob took them all the way down to the end, past Grandfather and Brandon and Lyanna, to show them their own tombs. Sansa kept looking at the stubby little candle, anxious that it might go out. Old Nan had told her there were spiders down here, and rats as big as dogs. Rob smiled when she said that. There are worse things than spiders and rats, he whispered. This is where the dead walk. That was when they heard the sound, low and deep and shivery. Baby Bran had clutched at Arya's hand. When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, white and moaning for blood, Sansa ran shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's leg, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only John, covered with flour. You stupid, she told him. You scared the baby. But John and Rob just laughed and laughed, and pretty soon Bran and Arya were laughing too. Sansa appears in this memory too, and she's the lone Stark POV who doesn't think about the crypts at any point. Yet, perhaps she will. But this is interesting because she lost her wolf. And of course, like I said, she's not calling herself a Stark right now. 
A lot has been said and written in our fandom with regards to Sansa losing her starkness, and George R. R. Martin himself intended for Sansa's loyalties to be torn when he originally wrote the outline for Game of Thrones back in 93. His plan was for Sansa to marry Joffrey and actually have kids with him, and that would have really tear her loyalties apart. So you can see why this is maybe a different version of that original intent. So it's somewhat fitting that she has so, no association with the Crips because of all this. Though maybe she's just freaked out by the place and doesn't like thinking of it. Hodor wouldn't take Bran down there either. And more alarming is this. A Game of Thrones, Bran 7. Summer stalked out in the echoing gloom, then stopped, lifted his head, and sniffed the chill, dead air. He bared his teeth and crept backward, eyes glowing golden in the light of the maester's torch. Even Osha, hard as old iron, seemed uncomfortable. Grim folk by the look of them, she said, as she eyed the long row of granite starks on their stone thrones. They were the kings of winter, Bran whispered. Somehow it felt wrong to talk too loudly in this place. Again, not everyone feels it, like Robert Baratheon, who laughed unrestrained to Ned's chagrin, and Maester Lewin, who disdains superstitions in particular and has been down there a lot, so it's kind of lost its creepiness for him. To others, though, if you're a Stark, you belong. If you're not, you don't. Especially when you have other issues, like these two. A dance with the dragons, the turncloak. They walked on. Barbara Dustin's face seemed to harden with every step. She likes this place no more than I do. Theon heard himself say, My lady, why do you hate the stocks? For the same reason you love them. Theon stumbled. Love them? I never. I took this castle from them, my lady. I had... Had Bran and Rickon put to death, mounted their heads on spikes, I... Rode south with Rob Stark, fought beside him at the Whispering Wood and Riveron, returned to the Iron Islands as his envoy to treat with your own father. Barrowtown sent men with the young wolf as well. I gave him as few men as I dared, but I knew that I must needs give him some, or risk the wrath of Winterfell. So I had my own eyes and ears in that host. They kept me well informed. I know who you are. I know what you are. Now answer my question. Why do you love the Starks? I... I wanted to be one of them. And never could. We have more in common than you know, my lord. Wow, right? Easy to think of the Starks as the good guys, but it's also easy to forget that the way the North reveres them could also inspire jealousy, especially those just outside that inner circle, which Lady Dustin and Theon... You can see why they would be in that category. Theon's closest to the Starks is a very natural thing. I mean, he was 10 when he was brought to Winterfell, and he grew close to Rob, who was near his age. I mean, that just makes sense. Like Lady Barbary and Theon, this is all at the heart of Jon's struggle, too. So close, yet so far. Just on the outside. Catelyn tells him he doesn't belong. Kind of like how Theon feels he doesn't belong. And then Jon tells himself the same. I don't belong. But a difference is in their dreams. Theons are full of guilt and terror, and a few other things, but guilt and terror are what we're focused on here. <laughs> John's are like this. A Game of Thrones, John 4. And then I find myself in the front of the door to the crypts. It's black inside, and I can see the steps spiraling down. Somehow I know I have to go down there, but I don't want to. I'm afraid of what might be waiting for me. The old kings of winter are down there, sitting on their thrones with stone wolves at their feet and iron swords across their laps, but it's not them I'm afraid of. I scream that I'm not a Stark, that this isn't my place, but it's no good. 
I have to go anyway, so I start down, feeling the walls as I descend, with no torch to light the way. It gets darker and darker, until I want to scream. So John has dark blood, of course, even if from Lyanna, not Ned. He thinks he's a snow, and thus doesn't deserve to be there. Society's rules for bastards, and his own family both tell him he's not a Stark. But, as the quote says, he has to go down there. Perhaps because he's Rob's heir. Meaning the responsibility of being the king in the North is his. That's what he has to go down there for. He's going to become a king in the North, thus he has to go down there. Metaphorically, his statue goes down there after he dies, perhaps. <laughs> he didn't seek to be Lord Commander and never had ambition for such. But that's what he is. Same thing might be happening here. If he discovers that he's heir to the Kingdom of the North, it would be similar in that it's a huge responsibility he never sought, but it also means he becomes a Stark in name. He'll later have to contend with learning about his real parents. So I guess he's in for a wild ride full of identity disclosures and discoveries and mysteries and all that. Lucky for us readers, John has no say in it. <laughs> we get to enjoy it while he suffers. As Stannis would say, I am king by rights. Wants do not enter into it. He turned down Stannis' offer of kneeling to become a Stark and Lord of Winterfell, but Rob's will is unconditional and over his head. This is not an offer he can refuse. It's more of a theme in his life than he knows. A man he thinks of his father had no choice when it came to keeping him alive either. <laughs> it's on his mind a lot as he nears his own death. A Game of Thrones, Eddard 13. He was walking through the crypts beneath Winterfell as he had walked a thousand times before. The kings of winter watched him pass with eyes of ice and the direwolves at their feet turned their great stone heads and snarled. Last of all, he came to the tomb where his father slept, with Brandon and Lyanna beside him. Promise me, Ned, Lyanna's statue whispered. She wore a garland of pale blue roses, and her eyes wept blood. The crypt is used as a device here in part because George wants to build the mystery. It's far too early to openly reveal John's parentage, but Ned's dream here helps lay the foundational elements, the blue roses and the promise in particular. Ned promises sister, apparently to keep John safe if... Not more, but certainly that much, at least. He also promised John that one day he'd tell him about his mother. Well, he clearly wasn't able to keep that promise, but John has other ways to learn the truth. John's questions of identity, which he himself is not really aware of yet, other than a vague wondering of who his mother was, and the question of how he himself will learn the truth is a big one that people have been asking for a long time. It could be Bran. That's a solid enough possibility through the magic. It could be Howland Reed. It could be both. It could be neither. Dark Wings. Stark wolves. Earlier, I said the stone direwolves were fairly straightforward since they're on the Stark sigil, after all. But sometimes there's more than one meaning, as this episode is really highlighting. Lots of double and triple meanings contained in the crypts and associated stories. It's also clear that there's a theme with regards to the direwolves and Stark identity. It's largely metaphorical, but not entirely. There's a supernatural element here as well. A Game of Thrones, Brand 6. Bran felt all cold inside. She lost her wolf, he said, weakly, remembering the day when four of his father's guardsmen had returned from the south with ladies' bones. Summer and Grey Wind and Shaggy Dog had begun to howl before they crossed the drawbridge, in voices drawn and desolate. They knew. Afterwards, they prowled around her grave, causing many tears from many readers. Later in the book, the direwolves would again herald death and sadness. I consider this the second saddest scene in the series, so be warned. 
A Game of Thrones, Brand 7. Summer began to howl. Maester Lewin broke off, startled. When Shaggy Dog bounded to his feet and added his voice to his brother's, Dread clutched at Bran's heart. It's coming, he whispered, with the certainty of despair. He had known it since last night, he realized, since the crow had led him down into the crypts to say farewell. He had known it, but he had not believed. He had wanted Maester Lewin to be right. The crow, he thought, the three-eyed crow. The howling stopped as suddenly as it had begun. Summer padded across the tower floor to Shaggy Dog and began to lick at a mat of bloody fur on the back of his brother's neck. From the window came a flutter of wings. A raven landed on the gray stone sill, opened its beak, and gave a harsh, raucous rattle of distress. Rickon began to cry. His arrowheads fell from his hand one by one and clattered on the floor. Bran pulled him close and hugged him. Maester Lewin stared at the black bird as if it were a scorpion with feathers. He rose, slow as a sleepwalker, and moved to the window. When he whistled, the raven hopped onto his bandaged forearm. There was dried blood on its wings. A hawk, Lewin murmured. Perhaps an owl. Poor thing. I wonder it got through. He took the letter from its leg. Bran found himself shivering as the maester unrolled the paper. What is it? he said, holding his brother all the harder. You know what it is, boy, Osha said, not unkindly. She put her hand on his head. Maester Lewin looked at them numbly, a small gray man with blood on the sleeve of his gray wool robe and tears in his bright gray eyes. My lords, he said to the sons, in a voice gone hoarse and shrunken, we, we shall need to find a stone carver who knew his likeness well. Ned's fears were realized, as were his children's dreams. When gazing on his father, Rickard's statue, he notes that the stone carver knew the man well. So Lewin's remark here about finding a stone carver who knew Ned's likeness well closes this circle with an extra note of tragedy. I wonder, too, if Major Lewin's skepticism was deeply damaged in that moment. Recall that he had just chided the two brothers moments before when they had claimed they had dreamt of their father down in the crypts. Recalls well that as a youth, he did show an interest in the arcane. He did have a Valyrian steel link on his chain, and that is what we're dealing with here. This is unmistakably magic. Bran says that the three-eyed crow led him to the crypts, so that seems like the best bet for their dreams, not some vague magic causing them to dream of their father's death, something we've otherwise never heard of. What to make of why he was led there, though? Surely Bran would have learned of his father's death, you know, through normal means. And if this is true, meaning if the three-eyed crow really did lead Bran into the crypts, as he believes, why did he do the same for Rickon? Why did Rickon have that dream? Why did he send it to him? That's a big question. Maybe he had a backup Stark in mind. Maybe he wanted to help awaken his powers too. It's a, it's a good question though. It's very puzzling. And why did the wolves howl like that? It's like they knew what was coming and they did the same before Lady's Bones arrived too, as I pointed out. It's like they sensed the death somehow. Very creepy. We see something else unusual. It's curious that Summer didn't want to leave the stairwell when he went down there with Maester Lewin. We quoted that earlier. He didn't follow Bran until Shaggy Dog emerged and attacked Lewin, and then Bran calls for Summer's help, and Summer comes charging. Not to mention that Osha was carrying Bran, as I pointed out earlier, because Hodor refused to go in. He went in later, though, when they were hiding. 
So perhaps there is something else going on. Maybe there is more than just these dreams leading them there. Maybe there is more magic around the crypts that isn't just the product of the three-eyed crow doing his thing. There's certainly some themes associated with the crypts that may be more than thematic. Maybe the supernatural is here after all. And here, foreshadowing may abound. But first, some acknowledgments. Thanks to Kohal Koei, master of the bow called Sunpiercer, who has killed three people this time around. Very bloodthirsty. The deaths are Caitlin, Sonia, and Kevin. Sorry guys, you're dead. And also thanks to Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragon bone hilt. And our Ironborn captains. Kathleen the Ruthless, captain of the Night Terror, motto, don't fall asleep. Black Matos Stormrider, captain of the Rusted Hinge. Rebea, Lady of Waves, captain of the Iron Shadowcat. Tusk Shield, Breaker Captain of Kraken's Fury. Oisan the Wanderer, Captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvas Redblade of White Harbor, Captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chucklaws, Captain of the Dromund Nightblood, Destroyer of Evil. Madzak, Captain of the Red Wake. Heron Burntbeard, Captain of the Smoking Narwhal. John Gregor, Captain of the Fist of the Drowned God. Karis Farwind, called Seal Speaker, Oracle of Lonely Light, the Eyes and the Waves. Sir Curon of Lonely Light, Scourge of the Sunset Sea, Captain of Naga's Breath, a Droman armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen, Archer Queen Captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Kate, Captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. And Jasana the Just, Collector of Tolls, Captain of the Golden Gift. I first mentioned my Studio Sweden Regent headphones in our And Now His Watch Begins episode during the live stream, but now I've had over a month and a half to be using them, so I have a lot more to say. I'm really happy with the Bluetooth connectivity. It's really smooth. I haven't had any trouble with that. I tried them out in my rock climbing gym and it was really nice that they stayed on really well. That's kind of been a problem with previous pairs of headphones. They're not sticking on uh, when something is jolting or something like that. I'm also really happy with the long battery life. 24 hours is what the advertisement says and it seems to be true. I haven't had to charge them very often. That's been really nice because my previous pair didn't work so well in that regard. They also have a microphone for call audio, which I haven't used much, but I verified is there. If you want to get yourself a pair, you can go to the link on our website, historyofwesteros.com. Studio Sweden headphones link. Click on the link there and use the code Westeros to get 15% off on any purchase. Dreams of the Dead A Game of Thrones, Eddard 1 For a moment, Eddard Stark was filled with a terrible sense of foreboding. This was his place here in the north. He looked at the stone figures all around them, breathed deep in the chill silence of the crypt. He could feel the eyes of the dead. They were all listening, he knew, and winter was coming. Again with the living dead and the, quote, his place motifs. Thinking back on the burial customs of other houses, well, the disadvantage is that there's less of a record of who came before. The advantage is you don't have a constant reminder of where you're going to go when you die. <laughs> it's a bit of a creepy thing, right? This monument to your own family's resting place, the ominous certainty of death so well reflected in the Stark House words, winter is coming. Ned could feel the eyes of the dead, it reads, and Theon feels the same way. I dance with the dragons, the turncloak. Their footsteps echoed through the vault as they made their way between the rows of pillars. The stone eyes of the dead men seemed to follow them, and the eyes of their stone direwolves as well. The faces stirred faint memories. A few names came back to him, unbidden, whispered in the ghostly voice of Maester Lewin. 
King Edric Snowbeard, who had ruled the North for a hundred years. Brandon the Shipwright, who had sailed beyond the sunset. Theon Stark, the Hungry Wolf, my namesake. Lord Baron Stark, who made common cause with Casterly Rock to war against Dagon Greyjoy, Lord of Pike, in the days when the Seven Kingdoms were ruled in all but name by the bastard sorcerer, men called Bloodraven. Note the mention of Bloodraven there. Of course, he is the Three-Eyed Crow. Had to sneak that in there. <laughs> but mostly, that's another topic. Here... I'm pointing more to the life in their eyes that Theon notes, which is something that we get lots of mentions of one way or another. I also can't help but notice the frequent mentions of the dead rising, like in that first quote way back and others we've already read. There's so many mentions of their eyes watching as they pass or their faces and pass, things like that. Just different devices George uses to humanize the statues, either as a device to build tension to make it creepier or to foreshadow them coming back to life, the dead rising, or both. Similarly, the problem with carrying on the tradition of iron swords as a method to prevent ghosts from getting loose is that when a sword goes missing, it becomes scary. Since the Tullys dump their dead in a river, there's no sword holding that spirit in place, they have nothing to worry about. Again, why don't the Starks burn their dead? <laughs> anyway, just as Ned does, and Theon, Lady Dustin notes a missing sword, apparently rusted away. And Theon also, as Ned does, is unsettled by this. And he's further unsettled when they find even more swords missing around Ned's tomb. The idea of ghosts loose in Winterfell doesn't make anyone feel giddy, even as he himself thinks of himself as one of the ghosts in Winterfell, but not a Stark. Very much not a Stark. This is, of course, in part because Bran and his friends took some of those swords. He took Brandon's, Mira took Rickard's, Osha takes the one intended for Ned's tomb, and Hodor takes one more, though we're not sure which. We know it's an older sword because Bran thinks of it as being very rusty. Now this is slightly funny because if you think about it, Theon is being haunted by Stark ghosts because of the missing swords, given what he did to the Starks. Even as the ones he pretended to kill are the ones who took those swords that are making him uneasy. <laughs> and they might really come back to haunt him. Though I doubt he'll face worse than what he faced from Ramsay Bolton. So maybe he's up for it. <laughs> now set around the lists of recent Lords of Winterfell is some interesting language that easily connects to some other things we've seen. A Clash of Kings, Brand 7. This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead where the living feared to tread. And A Game of Thrones, Brand 3. Finally, he looked north. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. The idea of warmth leaving the body or fleeing or seeping out or what have you as a way to describe death is what I'm pointing to here. Certainly seems that Bran was seeing John's death way back when in the Game of Thrones here. And that might be what John's dreams are telling him too. Beyond becoming a King of Winter himself, the idea that he's joining the Starks in the crypts is foreshadowing his own death, right? Joining them in the crypts. He has to go down there because he's going to die. Even in Arya's humorous anecdote with Jon playing the role of the dead rising as a fake ghost covered in flower, like a ghost covered in flower, get it? All white, like his direwolf. Even in the humorous anecdotes, George throws in some very important meaning. With all this talk of dead kings rising, and since we expect John to rise again, 
Maybe he won't be the only dead Stark to show back up. A Game of Thrones, John 7. Last night, he had dreamt the Winterfell dream again. He was wandering the empty castle, searching for his father, descending into the crypts. Only this time, the dream had gone further than before. In the dark, he'd heard the scrape of stone on stone. When he turned, he saw that the vaults were opening, one after the other. As the dead kings came stumbling from their cold black graves, John had woken in pitch dark, his heart hammering. Here's where we need to think about the Iron Swords yet again, something mentioned early in the story by Ned, late in the story by Theon and Lady Dustin. In between, again, some of those swords were taken by Bran and his friends, while others rusted away a long time before. The point is, the idea that these swords were keeping those dead Stark spirits at rest is another way that this concept of the dead rising is presented to us. Any way you look at it, there are a lot of references to the dead kings rising. Whether this is literal or figurative or both is a great question. I'm not sure how all the stone sepulchers could open to let out what's inside, or if there's even much left in there other than dust. So that might not work. But what about the unsealed lichyard where the servants, like Lady and Master of Hounds Farland, are buried? There might be some fresher bodies there. Anyway. Either way, I love the idea that the crypts, given how they tie into so many different central mysteries, especially mysteries of identity and hidden bloodlines, are speaking to the idea that the Starks and the others are connected, literally and figuratively. Which I guess is another mystery of identity and hidden bloodlines, really. <laughs> I love to also connect the crypts with the cave of the Three-Eyed Crow. Especially in the literary parallel and the concept of branches, right? All these branches of the Stark line buried deep and the branches of the Weirwood tree and its vast roots that Bran even encounters as he's wandering the caves. Well, as Hodor, not as himself, but still he sees them. If there's a distant Stark Others connection via, say, Knight's King and his Craster-like sacrifices to the Others and his Corpse Queen, or just something else, some other connection between Stark and the Others. There might be more than one connection. Either way, the balance is there with this ice and fire dichotomy and magical origins. The Targaryens literally have blood of the dragon. Maybe the Starks have blood of the Others. Or maybe the Others have blood of the Starks, or both. Whichever way you want to look at it, chicken or the egg. <laughs> the crypts represent the past and the dead. And this could be, or at least it could represent, the past coming back to haunt the living. That could be the metaphor here. The others coming back to haunt the living. The dead Starks coming back to haunt the living Starks. That kind of thing. And if they are going to wake up, stumbling from their cold black graves, as John's dream says, we might as well learn who they are, right? Kings of Winter. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. The tree itself was shrinking, growing smaller with each vision, whilst the lesser trees dwindled into saplings and vanished, only to be replaced by other trees that would dwindle and vanish in their turn. And now the Lord's brand glimpsed were tall and hard, stern men in fur and chainmail. Some wore faces he remembered from the statues in the crypts, but they were gone before he could put a name to them. That was, of course, Bran's Weirwood vision, which is just so gripping and awesome and has fostered much intense discussion and theory crafting. Each moment is a rabbit hole on its own, and it's easy to miss that reference to the crypts there. He says the faces were going too fast for him to name them, but when physically carried past them, he's got a lot to say. So yeah, we do have those names. A Game of Thrones, Bran 7. He looked at the passing faces and the tales came back to him. The maester had told him the stories, and old Nan had made them come alive. That one is John Stark. When the Sea Raiders landed in the east, he drove them out and built the castle at White Harbor. 
His son was Rickard Stark, not my father's father, but another Rickard. He took the neck away from the Marsh King and married his daughter. Theon Stark's the real thin one with the long hair and the skinny beard. They called him the Hungry Wolf because he was always at war. That's a Brandon, the tall one with the dreamy face. He was Brandon the shipwright because he loved the sea. His tomb is empty. He tried to sail west across the Sunset Sea and was never seen again. His son was Brandon the Burner because he put the torch to all his father's ships in grief. There's Roderick Stark, who won Bear Island in a wrestling match and gave it to the Mormons. And that's Torrin Stark, the king who knelt. He was the last king in the north and the first lord of Winterfell after he yielded to Aegon the Conqueror. Oh, there he's Cregan Stark. He fought with Prince Aemon once, and the Dragon Knight said he'd never faced a finer swordsman. I love that first line in particular. The maester told him the stories, and old Nan made them come alive. The facts are amazing, but it's the story that's truly gripping and more memorable. Stories get passed down more easily than facts. That's a good part of why a lot of history that's lost still exists in song format, even though that's a less trustworthy format. Songs can even outlast stones sometimes. Like songs, the statues in the crypts are an easy springboard for storytelling, like Bale the Bard. An epic verse, poem, or song will, like a story, often start with setting and characters, and the crypts are similar. The setting is somber and reflective and mysterious, and these are the Starks. So when names get named, they're provocative, even when we only have shreds of detail beyond that, because they're Starks, and the Starks are awesome. We've collected these shreds so that you can hear all that we know about the Starks who came long before. The Kings in the North. A Clash of Kings, Brand 7. Their footsteps echoed through the cavernous crypts. The shadows behind them swallowed his father as the shadows ahead retreated to unveil other statues. No mere lords, these, but the old kings in the north. On their brows they wore stone crowns. Torin Stark, the king who knelt. Edwin, the spring king. Theon Stark, the hungry wolf. Brandon the burner and Brandon the shipwright. Jorah and Jonos, Brandon the bad. Walton, the moon king. Adarian, the bridegroom. Iron, Benjen the sweet and Benjen the bitter. King Edric Snowbeard. Their faces were stern and strong, and some of them had done terrible things. But they were Starks, every one, and Bran knew all their tales. They're stone here, as it says, but in life, traditionally, the Kings of Winter wore a crown of bronze, with nine points made of iron, shaped like swords. But why nine points? Well, we don't know. We have no idea. This underscores how much Stark lineage, ancestry, and general history are lost. Such a major thing is gone, and just think of all the small things that we've lost with that. Despite that, it's fun to think about just how vast the line of Stark kings are, even if we only count the statues and not some of the mythical figures who maybe should be included, but we don't know who they all are, besides like Brandon the Builder. Lines like, quote, down to the deeper levels where kings more ancient still sat their dark thrones are the literary equivalent of a picture is worth a thousand words to us, the obsessed Song of Ice and Fire fan. It takes us back thousands of years ago to when there were a hundred or more kings in Westeros. And over the years, these kings fought and the defeated kingdoms were absorbed, forming progressively larger kingdoms. This is part of why the early Starks were said to be hard men for hard times, as they had a lot more fighting to do than the more recent Starks, who ruled over a united north. These faced rebellions and had problems in cold and winter to deal with, but their ancestors had worse. They faced independent kingdoms like the Barrow Kings of the Barrowlands and the far worse Red Kings of the Dreadfort. 
Those Starks also faced supernatural enemies, at least a few of whom had kingdoms of their own. And as it is so often with conquered kingdoms, the conqueror takes a daughter of the defeated, so their descendants have a blood claim that unites the two dynasties. The extension of this is that behind the mysteries of John's parentage are older mysteries of heritage that speak to supernatural bloodlines for all the Starks. And I'm not talking about the others this time. The World of Ice and Fire Ancient ballads, among the oldest to be found in the archives of the Citadel of Old Town, tell of how one king of winter drove the giants from the north whilst another felled the skin-changer Gavin Greywolf and his kin in a savage War of the Wolves. But we have only the word of singers that such kings and such battles ever existed. If these kings are buried in the crypts, would we even know about it? They could exist down there in unmarked form, and we'd be none the wiser. Though the maesters do apparently record such things when they can. For example, we know of a Maester Kennet's, quote, Passage of the Dead, which is a study of the barrow fields and graves and tombs of the north in his time of service at Winterfell during the long reign of Cregan Stark. That's what we're told in The World of Ice and Fire. But Cregan died only, you know, a little over a century ago. So this is a fairly recent study. However, you'd think that since Winterfell has had maesters for as long as we know, even before the Seven Kingdoms existed, maesters have been a thing for a long time, thousands of years. Maester Kennet probably referred to older maesters and what they had written about Winterfell. If we only had those notes. <laughs> I would love to see them. <laughs> Maester Kennets or the older ones, either of them. Give me any of it. Despite that, we somehow do have at least a few names of Stark kings from these more openly magical times. The World of Ice and Fire the archives of the Citadel contain a letter from Maester Aemon sent in the early years of the reign of Aegon V, which reports on such an account from a ranger named Redwin, written in the days of King Doran Stark. It recounts a journey to Lorne Point and the Frozen Shore, in which it is claimed that the ranger and his companions fought giants and traded with the children of the forest. Then again, since we know giants and children both still exist even now, this may not be that long ago after all. It may not be that old. Especially since anything written down can't be truly ancient, since there was no writing back then. What we have for you now is an overview of all the kings of winter and the few deeds we know that are attributed to them. Most of these we see statues of in the crypts, though I've added a few other names that might not be. For example, we'll start with Brandon the Builder, who is probably not in the crypts, but it would be awesome if he was. Next we have Brandon the Breaker, who is probably the next oldest that we know of. He took down the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and considering John is like 998th, I believe, can match that is a really long time ago. But the thing that's special about him isn't that he was the 13th and that he was so old, although that matters. It's that this is the one who became Night's King. And according to the legend, he was brother of Brandon the Breaker. And Brandon the Breaker also obliterated all records of this brother of his, which is a strange thing to say because... That's a time when they didn't really have records. Maybe there were runic inscriptions or something. That would count as records, and maybe Brandon the Breaker got rid of those. This is supposed to maybe help explain to us why this Night's King legend is extra obscured by legend. But also, it happened a really long time ago, which is, that's good enough to keep it really well obscure. Still, George had his reasons, and they're probably good reasons. Next, we have Doran Stark, who is mentioned in the quote above, the one who reigned during a time that rangers traded with children and fought giants. He may be the next oldest, but this is a rough guess. 
Next, we have Roderick Stark, who is known for wrestling for Bear Island, now, you know, held by the Mormons. This is puzzling a little bit because it's said that Bear Island was lost to King Loren Greyjoy, who was elected by Kingsmoot. And as we know from Aaron Greyjoy, when he brings up the Kingsmoot in A Feast for Crows, it has been either two or four thousand years since the previous Kingsmoot. Roderick Stark took Bear Island back from Loren Greyjoy's son, which is also funny because... Lauren Greyjoy's son won the King's Moot, that means. Which, because normally during the time of King's Moots, you know, the sons didn't inherit. They decided who was a king each time. Lauren's son maybe was elected king again, but you can see why there's a little oddity here. Next up, we have John Stark, who drove out the Sea Raiders in the east. That's around the area of White Harbor, before it was White Harbor. He built what was called the Wolf's Den, which White Harbor grew up around eventually, the Wolf's Den was for a while held by a cadet branch of the Starks called the Grey Starks, but they don't exist anymore. Rickard Stark is the son of John Stark, and he defeated the Marsh King and married his daughter. Remember earlier, I, I spoke on that concept of very often when one conqueror takes a new territory, he marries the daughter of the defeated king to tie the bloodlines together. This is certainly what happened here. And it might have a little something to do with some of the magic that's in the Stark bloodline. Because the Marsh King may have, you know, blood of the Kranig men or something like that. Interesting thing here is that the defeat of the Marsh King came after the defeat of the last Red King. Because it apparently was the last piece of territory added to the North. In terms of the domains of the Kings of the North. And uh, so the Red Kings had already been added to their domains. Next, we have Brandon the Ninth. He is not mentioned in the crypts, but he is mentioned, and he's probably in there. He destroyed the Skagosi fleet, forbidding them from the sea after growing sick of their raids. Now, of course, Brandon being such a common Stark name, the Ninth Brandon, sounds like it was a really long time ago because there's so many of them. <laughs> and when he says he forbade the Skags the sea, it may mean they were conquered already, and he just took that right away from them, or maybe... He just attacked them, took away their ships, and then let them be. I think that he probably had them conquered already, which would imply that Skagos was conquered a long time ago. It would also imply that the Red Kings had been conquered by this time, because it would be weird, if you look at it geographically, it would be kind of weird for the Starks to conquer around the Bolton territory, right? The, the Skagos is east of the Dreadfort, and the Dreadfort is east of Winterfell. So you would think that they would not conquer, you know, a territory that's past what the Boltons hold. So it's a good, uh, it's cool to see how many different things we can infer from all this, even if there's still so much left undiscovered. Another name that's probably more familiar because it's a very, well, it's just a memorable name. Edric Snowbeard. He supposedly reigned a hundred years, which, you know, for deconstructing the myth, that probably means he reigned until he was past a hundred. He was probably just really old. He probably didn't actually reign a hundred years. Although it's possible, it's possible. He raised the outer walls of Winterfell. And there's two sets of walls. There's the 80-foot walls and the 100-foot walls. So it makes it really hard to attack, unless you know a secret way in, which may or may not exist. More on that later. But those walls were really important. They're still there. And that's a notable achievement. During Edric Snowbeard's reign, when he was really near the end of his time, he faced a lot of rebellions by Bolton, Ironborn, 
And the Wolf's Den, which still wasn't White Harbor by this point, was taken over by slavers. Brandon Ice Eyes Stark, a great-grandson of Edric, who possibly was next in line, because remember, Edric ruled for so long, he may have outlived his own sons and his grandsons, but this could also be, you know, a generation or two later. We just don't know. Either way, he took the Wolf's Den back from the slavers and famously hung their entrails from the heart tree as an offering to the old gods. This wasn't super long ago. Remember, this is a lot of this was told to Davos, and he's freaked out by this because he's like, wow, I didn't know that the that y'all in the north used to do blood sacrifice. And the knight telling him this is like, oh, there's a lot about the north you don't know. <laughs> it's very, very creepy. Next up, we have Theon Stark, the Hungry Wolf. There's a bit of a disconnect on his deeds, which... The simplest explanation I could come up with is that there's just multiple Theon Starks and these got conflated kind of like the many Brandons, the Brandon the Builder, right? This Theon invaded Andalos and fought many battles versus the Ironborn. It's said that he took Bear Island. That's why the earlier part about Lauren Greyjoy and Roderick Stark is a little confusing because I guess Bear Island just went back and forth a lot of times. But still, the problem here is that if he fought all these battles against the First Men, and also against the Ancient Ironborn in the time of the King's Moots, how was he fighting the Andals then? The Andals hadn't invaded yet. So this is a little off. But it's not so off that it's a mistake. It's just confusing. And perhaps there are, you know, explanations that we're not aware of. Next we have yet another Brandon, Brandon the Daughterless. He may have been a king, but he may be in the wrong spot. We may should have saved him to talk about in the Lords of Wintersfell section, which is next. And the reason for that is, while the story feels ancient, and there's no living memory of Bale, so it seems like he's old. For example, the Starks now, Maester Lewin, none of them had heard of Bale the Bard. Only the Night's Watch knew because of the songs. But still, in the song, in the story that Ygritte tells to John, she refers to the King's Road. The King's Road did not exist during the time of any Stark kings, unless you count Rob. Because <laughs> the King's Road was built by Jaehaerys, the old king, which was, you know, in maybe ACAL 50 or 60 or 70, something like that. So well after Torin Stark, the last king knelt. He's coming up pretty soon too. So that is part of um, why the Brandon the Daughterless story is questioned by some people. But as you can see here from what I'm relating, there's a lot of these stories that have maybe explainable inconsistencies, which I think are intentional because George wouldn't give us fully accurate history because that's not realistic in the setting. It wouldn't be realistic for them to know all these details about these Starks, considering there's no writing, no records. How could they possibly know all these things? Next up is Benjen the Sweet, who we don't know anything about at all. Then Benjen the Bitter, who was probably related to Benjen the Sweet. <laughs> well, they're definitely related. They're both Starks, but maybe they were brothers. Maybe one was the son of the other. Don't really know. There was another Stark just called Iron. King Iron. E-Y-R-O-N. I've never seen a Stark with that name again, so that's a little odd. Maybe that indicates he wasn't a good king, because the good ones, you see their names come up again, right? Benjins. Lots of Benjins. Lots of Brandons. Lots of, well, there's been some bad Brandons, but, you know, most of them have been good, I guess. Point being, the good names get repeated, and this one, eh, maybe doesn't mean anything, but this one we've never seen again. Next up, we have Adarian the Bridegroom, who... We don't know anything about other than this nickname. What that says to me is that he got married a bunch of times. He was he was had a lot of weddings. He was the bridegroom many times. But total guess in the dark there. Next up is Walton the Moon King. 
Walton may not sound like a northern name, but there is another Walton we know of. That's Steelshanks Walton, who is one of Lord Bolton's captains that Jamie has a lot of interactions with. The Moon King, though, that part sounds a little odd. Maybe it's just a nickname. There's a million reasons it could mean something. Makes me think of the Aarons, though. Makes me think of the Eerie. The Moon Door and the Moon and Falcon on their banner. Maybe he married an Aaron. Or maybe his mother or father were Aaron. Probably more likely his mother. But that could explain it. Maybe he had a, a special liking for the Veil. Who knows? Maybe this Moon thing has nothing to do with the Veil at all. Just guessing here. There was Brandon the Good, there's a King Jorah, and a King Jonos. That's cool, we know of some, we don't know of any other northern Jonases. We know of a Jonas Bracken, who was, uh, you know, of House Bracken, and Jorah Mormont, obviously we know where that one comes from. Next up is Brandon the Shipwright, and he apparently tried to sail so far to the west over the Sunset Sea and explore what was out there, but he never returned. His son is Brandon the Burner. Now, there's a song called The Burning of the Ships, in the north, and it might be about him. Also, it's supposedly Brandon the Burner lived only hundreds of years ago, which to me sounds like near the end of the Stark Kings, you know, as we get into the last king. And the reason that is, not just because it says hundreds of years ago, is because of the burning of the ships. And here's why. Remember back in the day, the Starks were still conquering the north. There were all these other kingdoms. They were not about to go sending expeditions off of the west coast of Westeros when they didn't even control the west coast of Westeros. So, it's very likely something that they did after the entire north was conquered, well in hand, and, you know, instead of having to worry about rebellions, or as many rebellions, and war, and all that, they could do things like this. Explore. This is one of the few examples of that we know of. I'm sure there's others, but this is a, one of the few examples of a Stark king doing something kind of progressive-ish, you know, like going outside the realm, looking beyond. I guess another example is Ned's father, Rickard, who, with his southward ambitions and all. Another name, and it's the last name before Torin, the king who knelt, is Edwin, the Spring King. Now, that could mean a lot of things again. These nicknames can be interpreted a lot of different ways, but it could be a king who didn't last very long. He only ruled during the spring. If he only ruled during a spring, that kind of implies he didn't rule very long because, you know, winter's going to come eventually. In other words, just a really cool list of evocative names, but we just can only guess at some of them. I really hope we learn more later. We might. I figure a couple more books left, a couple more trips down to the crypts. Maybe we'll get some more information. Really hope so. But there's more here. That's the last king, but we have the lords. And these we know a little bit more about because they're more recent. Lords of Winterfell. A Clash of Kings, Brand 7. When the shadows moved, it looked for an instant as if the dead were rising as well. Lyanna and Brandon, Lord Rickard Stark, their father, Lord Edwile, his father, Lord Willem and his brother, Artos the Implacable, Lord Donor and Lord Baron and Lord Rodwell, one-eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Barth and Lord Brandon and Lord Cregan, who had fought the Dragon Knight. On their stone chairs they sat with stone wolves at their feet. Starting with, of course, Torin, the king who knelt, until Rob, the only Stark who had been both lord and king of Winterfell. No idea when Torin died. It, there could be quite a few lords between him and the next Stark we know of, who was named Ellard. And just after Torin knelt, there was some problems in the north. There were a lot of northerners unhappy with the kneeling. 
And because of the kneeling, a sellsword company formed called the Company of the Rose. It was formed by wild men, and according to some accounts, women from the north who refused to bend the knee. And they went across the narrow sea and did their thing in Essos. Since the Company of the Rose apparently doesn't exist anymore, maybe, you know, well, we haven't heard of it. Maybe it does exist, but I tend to believe it's gone now. Anyway, Aegon I made a progress, meaning a royal progress. That's when they wander around the country and get cheered at and introduce themselves to all the different lords and ladies. Well, his last progress, this is Aegon the Conqueror, was in 33 AC, and it was to the north. He may have seen Torrin Stark. Maybe Torrin was still alive. Though, this is 32 years after Torrin knelt, so we could easily see us, you know, on to the next Stark by then, or even two Starks. We probably know that the line continues through Torrin because Torrin did have sons, multiple sons. Maybe only two, but maybe a lot more. And we know that these sons wanted to rebel against the Targaryens, or at least apparently they wanted to. So these same sons didn't attend the wedding of their sister to Lord Ronald Aaron, who died before or during his brother's failed coup. So... Sadly, this sister was killed, and any kids they may have had were killed too, because Jonos, Ronald's brother, killed Ronald and his family. Apparently threw them through the moon door. Magor the Cruel came in and took out Jonos. So that line died off. So the, there's, that Stark blood didn't get into the veil. But the reason the sons were against it, in part, was because of the arranged marriage aspect. The wedding was forced, basically, by Rhaenys Targaryen, Aegon's sister, and uh, that's part of why the sons were not happy about it. But er Torrin went along with it. So there hasn't been another Lord Torrin that we know of, but there is plenty of space on the tree left unknown, so there could be other Lord Torrens. The name also pops up elsewhere, such as there's a Torrin Karstark, uh, so it may not be a shameful name, and that's kind of what I'm getting at here. I want to know if the kneeling of Lord Torrin well, King Torn, who became Lord Torn, whether that meant that the name was associated with cowardice or weakness or, or giving up or capitulation, some of those things. Anyway, now we know of an Ellard Stark who protested the gift. And the gift, of course, was in the reign of Jaehaerys I, the old king, so maybe around 50 or 60 or 70. But this is a print error. That Ellard shouldn't have been there. The right Ellard comes along a couple generations later, around the time of the Great Council of 101, and he may have been Lord not terribly long after 101, because we know of who was Lord in 129, and that's Cregan. But we're not to him yet. In between Cregan, there was a Benjen and a Rickon. And Benjen was probably a son of Ellard, but we don't know. And Rickon was definitely a son of Benjen and a Lysa Locke. Now, Cregan, like I said, he ruled from 129 to maybe 157 or later. We don't know. It was at least 157, probably later than that. His nickname was the Old Man of the North. He ruled for a long time. He's the son of that Rickon Stark and a lady, Gillianne Glover. He had a son named Rickon, so he named his child after his father. This was around maybe 131, no later than 131, given that he was born from an Aranori, and Cregan had three wives, and Aranori was his first wife. It's important to note that he was unmarried during the famous Hour of the Wolf, which is when he comes down and executes a bunch of people for poisoning the king, even though the king was his enemy. It was, uh, you know, he was hand for one day. Now, his son Rickon fought in the conquest of Dorne, 
which is interesting. Since Cregan had no other sons, it's interesting that he had his only heir fighting in a dangerous war. But, eh, that's just the Northerners for you. But it's nice to know, or interesting to know at least, that the North fought for the young dragon. This is, of course, the conquest of Dorne in 157. So maybe what we can say here is since Cregan had an uncle Bernard, maybe that's what was being thought here. He's like, oh, if my son Rickon dies, well, there's plenty of other male Starks. That's always a consideration. Whenever uh, you have only a couple of Starks around, you got to make sure those few are protected or at least that they breed. There were some other Starks around at this time. There was an, another Benjen, there was a Brandon, and an Elric. And these were all children of Bernard. Born at least 15 years prior to the dance or so. As I said, Cregan ruled a long time. Maybe he was age 70 or so when he died. But one of the interesting details about his life is that he fought Aemon the Dragon Knight. And that is hard to line up with, the, hard to figure out where it fits in the timeline because, well, Cregan would have been old when Aemon was still pretty young. And there's almost no way they fought for real, as in they were trying to kill each other. I would guess it was some sort of exhibition or a tournament or something like that. Because Aemon was born in like 134. So by the time he's even only 14, we're talking the year 148-ish, Cregan's got to be, you know, maybe already over 40 by then. So, yeah, anyway. And if they fought at some later time, well, then he'd be even older. And the problem in the middle is we have the reign of Baylor the Blessed from 160 to 170. And that guy probably wasn't allowing a lot of, like, tournaments or such. So Rickon goes to Dorne and dies. That's the interesting part. And not only does he die, he dies near the end of the war. So it's extra tragic because the war had mostly been won. Forget the fact that the war had to be fought all over again about a year or two later. At that point, it, it was almost over. So it was extra tragic, partly because it threw the North into a little bit of chaos, not knowing who the next heir would be, whether it would be Bernard or whether his kids or one of these other things. So Cregan does end up remarrying, but he doesn't have any sons with his new wife. He has several girls, but then she dies and he marries again. Finally, he has some more sons. In fact, he has a bunch of sons. So the line of the Stark continues through his third wife with his fourth son, which is his fifth son overall. <laughs> so a lot of Starks were heir and then didn't actually become Lord. Cregan just lasted a long time. The one who did finally get there, Jonal One-Eye, son of Cregan and Linara Stark. Yep, Cregan married his own cousin, kind of like Ned's father did. After all those different sons and all those different Starks, the one who finally became Lord of Winterfell after Cregan was Jonal, and his nickname was Jonal One-Eye. And his mother was Lainara Stark. That's right. Cregan's third wife was his cousin, another Stark. Kind of like Ned's father and mother, who were cousins, both Starks. He would have been born 132 at the earliest, and he married a Sansa, daughter of his elder half-brother, with a Jane Manderley. Now, they had no kids. And as much as that sounds like an incest marriage, it's that member that it was his half-brother. So this is a half-brother's child marrying him. So it's not as bad as it sounds. I wouldn't do that kind of thing. <laughs> but this is clearly over the line in Westeros for not considered an incest marriage based on the fact that we've seen marriages that are even closer than this that no one seems to bat an eye at. Now, despite the fact that they had no issue, he probably ruled for a while. One thing we hear of from the She-Wolves of Winterfell story, which is an unpublished Duncan egg, which is probably going to be the fifth 
Duncan Egg story, which refers to a, quote, five Lord Starks dying within a close period of time. We know who the fifth one was. That's Baron. So Jonal has to be number one. If Jonal had only ruled a short time, it would be six Starks within a short time instead of five, right? Because then we'd have to include Cregan also. So it sounds like Jonal had a good long rule despite not having any kids. And that's okay. He didn't have to have kids because he had a brother named Edric and other brothers, and those brothers had children. Funny that I mentioned Edric because he's the only one of Jonal's younger brothers to not also be Lord of Winterfell. The next Lord of Winterfell was the brother after Edric, which is Barth Blacksword. That's a great name, Barth Blacksword. I wonder if he actually wielded ice in battle. Ice is too large to fight with for most people, but there's bound to be a few large dudes that could wield it, you know? It, Ned couldn't use it in a battle, but maybe this Barth Blacksword did. So, of course, he's still the son of Cregan and Lenara, just like his brother Jonal. And he would have been born, you know, another year or so at the earliest, 133. We do have a rough time frame of his death, somewhere between 184 and 209, because he died during the reign of Daron II. And he was killed by Skagosi. He fought the Skagosi Rebellion, and since yeah, the Rebellion took several years to put down, then we're probably talking closer to the year 200 than we are to 209. I'm thinking more on the early end of this time frame than the later, because of this Rebellion took so long to go out. He also had no children, and again, he was not under a lot of pressure to produce an heir because his younger brothers existed, and at least one of them had kids. The next younger brother is Brandon. Yeah, hey, surprise, another Brandon Stark. He was born 134 at the earliest, and he presumably finished off the Skagosi Rebellion that claimed his brother's life. But that's all we know about him, though, other than that the line passes through him. His son Rodwell, which really is more of a porn star name, I think, than a Stark name, he was the son of Brandon, as we said, and an Alice Karstark. This is who Rickard should have mentioned to Rob regarding kinslaying, by the way. <laughs> when Rickard Karstark is about to be executed by Rob Stark, he says, Our families, you know, go back a thousand years. He could have pointed to a much more recent example, but eh, whatever. <laughs> That's nitpicking. We don't know what killed Rodwell. Maybe the Great Spring Sickness? We don't know. He may have, but he didn't live very long again. Five Lord Starks died in a relatively short period of time, so there's no chance it was a long rule. And he also had no kids, even though he also married a Manderly, a Miriam Manderly. Next is Baron Stark, who is son of the same Brandon and this Alice Karstark again. Now, he died circa 211. We have a much better time frame on him, because he's the one that's slowly dying from his wounds suffered at the hands of Dagon Greyjoy and his Reavers during Dagon Greyjoy's rebellion. And this is around the time that Bloodraven was handed a king. And Bloodraven was so focused on Bittersteel and the Blackfires that he kind of allowed Dagon to run wild. And this Baron even had an alliance with the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. And he married a Royce. This Laura Royce is kind of a major matriarch in Stark history, as I talked about in our episode on the Royces. Their first son, at least the one who took over. There may have been one before him, but the one who inherited Winterfell is Donor Stark, 
Really missed opportunity there, George. You've got a Stark named Donner, as in the Donner Party, and he's not the one that lost to the cannibal Skags? Come on. Before we knew this, we knew the name of Donner before we knew who which Stark died when. A bunch of us on the forums <laughs> used to be so sure that Donner would be the one killed by the Skags because we figured that was George's sense of humor. But nope, we were wrong. Anyway, he was too young to marry, most likely, and still died really young. So... Next up, we have Willem Stark, who is also the son of Baron and Laura. And he was born sometime before 211 because Baron died in 211. So clearly he had to, you know, unless there's one of those things where his mother got pregnant and then his father dies before he's born. But that's only a nine month time frame. So Willem is the one who is brother of the non-lord Artos the Implacable, who got a statue. Willem was killed by Raymond Redbeard, the wildling king, in 226. Artos killed Raymond, and then angrily demanded that the Night's Watch handle all the burying of the dead because they didn't do their job and let this wildling raider get so far into the north. Artos, as I said much earlier in this episode, very likely ruled as a proxy for his young nephew Edwile. Edwile was the son of Willem, and since Willem died young, there's basically no way Edwile was more than a few years old. Maybe he could have been like nine, but we really don't think so. He was the son, again, of Willem and Melantha Blackwood, and this is Willem's second wife. His elder half-brother died very young. This is Edwell's elder half-brother, and this story is mentioned by Old Nan. She refers to her coming to be a wet nurse to Winterfell, and at that time there was a young Brandon who died around maybe two or three years old, and Old Nan kind of refers to Bran in kind of in the same way, you know, like refers to them familiarly that way. Now, Edwile had a sister named Jocelyn who married back into the Royce family. So that's their grandmother, right? Edwile's grandmother was a Royce. So that's cool. So they kept their, their apparently kept their good ties there. There was a huge, horrible winter from 230 to 236. So this is what Edwile lived through as a young boy. He probably came of age just after that. So he had a rough upbringing living through that winter. He had tough times. And that may speak to why Rickard was a bit like the way he was. Although, to be fair, we don't actually know a lot about Rickard. But other than that, he was the son of Edwile in a lock, Marna lock. And... He died in 282, of course, thanks to the Mad King. We all know that story. Well, I don't need to repeat that one. Finally, now we get to Ned Stark himself. He's the son of Liara Stark and Rickard. Liara being Rickard's first cousin. Liara also having a very similar name to the previous Stark cousin marriage that we see, which is a Linara marrying Cregan. Liara is a daughter of Roderick, the Wandering Wolf, and Arya Flint. Roderick was a son of Baron and Laura Royce, that same Baron who was killed by Dagon Greyjoy's Reavers. So this is kind of funny because it means that Ned's great-grandmother, Laura, is also his great-great-grandmother, Laura. <laughs> and his great-grandfather, Baron, is also his great-great-grandfather, Baron. The same person. They're just his great-grandfather if you go up one tree, and it's his great-great-grandfather if you go up the other tree. It's all very confusing, but also very funny. Bran himself tells us about most of these statues, and he learned to feel comfortable in the crypts and with the idea that one day he would rest there forever with all these other Starks. But instead, 
it might not happen. He may be destined to rest forever in a living werewood throne instead of a dead stone one. As he's leaving the crypts at the end of the Clash of Kings, he thinks that he's always expected to be buried here, but starts to doubt that it'll actually happen. He asks himself, quote, If I go up, will I ever come back down? Where will I go when I die? Compare the ancient stone kings on their thrones below Winterfell to the ancient green seers on their werewood thrones, like the ones the children gave to Bran below the cave of the Three-Eyed Raven. This cave has belonged to the children since time immemorial, as far as we know, and they call themselves singers. Funny that hiding in the crypt is a trick brought to us by wildling bards like Bale and Mance. Bards are singers too, of course. Nice. Bran slips into Hodor. And through him, we also see vast caverns, huge underground rivers, and impenetrable darkness down there, and the notion that there's so much more. So while we get a glimpse, we don't get the same from the crypts. We don't have any idea what's down there. The Unexplored Depths If we're trying to compare the cave of the Three-Eyed Raven to the Stark Crypts, we should wonder if there are roots from the ancient heart tree in the godswood down there amidst the Stone Kings. That would be a really amazing discovery, be really provocative, be really cool. We are told there are lower levels, but we don't know how many and how much lower. We're also told that there was a collapse on the lower levels. Now this is an easy out for explaining why some of the older statues seem to have chronological problems or may have chronological problems. Because some of the ones on the first level seem like they're way too old to be up there. And some of them seem like they're out of order with the ones that are listed next to them. But the reason this might work is if there was a collapse on a lower level, well, that would have maybe buried some of the old statues. They could have been recovered and then moved up to a high, another level where they wouldn't get reburied. You know, digging them out of the rubble and saying, hey, this is not a safe spot for them anymore. Let's move them up to a higher spot where they're not going to be collapsed on. Possible, but just a theory. Now, here's another idea. Maybe the slowly but surely encroaching werewood root system had something to do with that cave-in. If not, maybe it was the other way around. And the collapse could have caused some of the roots to become visible, which would make the parallels to Brant's cave beyond the wall even more clear. Or maybe it was that volcanic activity related to the hot springs. Regardless, something caused that collapse, and it opens up a lot of possibilities, literally, like new tunnels, or connections, or cave systems, or connections to other cave systems. Think of the Night Fort, which has a subterranean depth that lead to a passage with a magical door beneath the wall. This idea of big, vast tunnel systems and caves is a big part of what we know about the North in general, and it might be that some of them connect to each other. Or the opposite of all this, the closing off of such passages. That's really what you think about more often when you hear about tunnels collapsing, right? Maybe the burying of some of the ancient kings happened along this. Maybe the new current Starks aren't aware of the fact that some of their most ancient ancestors are buried beneath the rubble, not that far down below the earth. Either way, though, it's a literal and figurative dead end. If there's no way out, or if the narrative never takes us to these depths, there's nothing much more to say other than, damn. But if there's something, and I think there probably is, what could it be? Well, we talked about the possibility of a passageway out. It's a fairly popular idea. Like, again, what Mance and Abel were looking for. It, it could explain, if it does exist, how Bale and his Stark bride lasted so long in the crypts. We're told they were down there like a year, which is kind of hard to believe. Like, where were they getting food? Were they sneaking out every once in a while to grab food? It would make a lot more sense if they had a back way out and they could just go out and hunt or something. 
And if somehow the dragon Vermax did lay eggs down there, again, it doesn't make sense for him to enter through the crypt door. But if there's some tunnel out there in the wilderness and he goes through that way, that makes sense. If he goes through some sort of outdoor cave that's wider, that, again, would work. So if such a way in and out does exist, it could be huge, especially if discovered by someone during, say, I don't know, a siege of Winterfell, especially if that someone isn't among the living. Can you imagine the dead finding a secret way into Winterfell while the living are besieged there? Yikes. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see on that account, but I hope you're now as convinced as we are, if you weren't already, that the crypts have been in the series through and through and appear poised to continue along that path as a really important factor, and I'm guessing we're going to get a surprise or two. Epilogue. Some of the surprises in this series have such powerful emotional resonance that they stay with us as human beings, meaning in daily life, as if they were real. But if we're really delving into the heart of the matter, you don't reread a book to be surprised again. You'd need one of those memory-wiping devices from the Men in Black or something. A Song of Ice and Fire has amazing action and tension and payoffs, but the characters, the human stories, are the real hook for a huge portion of the deeper fandom and probably a, a bigger part of why people reread. So any surprises we get from the Crypts of Winterfell will be gravy, because the Crypts have already given the story so much via the characters themselves just being down there and confronting how it makes them feel and what it makes them feel, or at least dreaming of it if they're not down there, like in John's case. And beyond their historical and collective significance, the Crypts have deeply personal significance to the characters who have inhabited Winterfell. In particular, Bran, Jon, and Theon's arcs are tied to the Crypts in ways that reflect each of their relationships to the castle and the Stark name and how these relationships differ from each other. Martin tends to be very careful with his choice of words, and how he writes about the Crips is telling. For Bran, the Crips are, quote, our place, a stark place. He feels in tune and in harmony with them on a metaphysical level as he does with the rest of the castle. Both Bran and Rickon dream about their father in the Crips in their place after Ned is executed. When the older Stark brother then wanders through the crypts on Hodor's back, he names each king and lord in turn, demonstrating not only his knowledge, but his sense of belonging. He reaffirms his place here, silently asserting that he too might rest down here one day, and that this would be right and proper, the will of the gods. Sure, the crypts are spooky for a little kid at first, but as we saw, it became a place where the Stark kids would play, and ultimately it's a source of comfort and refuge, a touchstone of his identity. When the world thinks Bran dead, he is in truth reborn from this hall of death, in the crypts. It's as if his ancestors, marking the boy as one of their own, have stepped back into the realm of the living to shield him from their family's foes, preserving a scrap of House Stark when all increasingly seems lost. He and his companions take swords from the crypts, which is rumored to unleash the ghosts within, but one never gets the sense that they would actually trouble Bran. Other people, sure. He is in so many ways the ultimate Stark. The keeper of the flame, the eyes and the heart tree, heir and namesake of Bran and the Builder. So for his arc, the crypts represent death, not as finality, but as eternal recurrence, as resurrection. Rarely are the Fisher King tropes in Bran's story more pronounced than here. He is Winterfell. And as he says, it's not dead either. Even when the only unbroken part of it houses the dead. Meaning when Winterfell's been burned by Ramsay, he says the castle itself is not dead. Our bodies feed the soil, the plants grow accordingly, and the wolves will come again. For Theon, the crypts are exactly the opposite. A reminder that he does not belong here. 
that he will always be seen as an invader, an outsider, even though he lived in Winterfell half his life. A dance with dragons, the turncloak. Theon had never felt comfortable in the crypts. He could feel the Stone King staring down at him with their stone eyes, stone fingers curled around the hilts of rusted longswords. Not out any love for Ironborn. The sense of harmony and belonging experienced by Bran is utterly denied Theon. Barbary's dry comment that all my favorite Starks are dead applies to Theon as well, but unlike Bran, he can find no closure nor catharsis here because he feels so guilty about Rob. In other words, Theon's relationship to Winterfell torments rather than comforts him, and the crypts bring that to the fore. For Theon, quote, there's nothing down there but dead Starks, because he lacks Bran's magical and historical connection to the place, and thus can only feel judged by the dead eyes. Just before taking Lady Barbary down there, Theon pauses to note that, quote, the gods could not kill Bran no more than I could. It was a strange thought, and stranger still to remember that Bran might still be alive. This further emphasizes the degree to which Bran draws strength from this place, where Theon sees it only his own failures and weaknesses. Bran could name all the kings of winter like he was born to join them, but when asked to do the same by Barbary, Theon forgets most of them and says he used to know them. In a sense, both Bran and Theon died at the end of the Clash of Kings, but Bran was reborn as himself to preserve the Stark name, whereas Theon was reborn as Reek because of his follies attacking House Stark. Throughout A Dance with Dragons, Theon is seesawing between the man he was and the man, Reek, that Ramsay's torture regimen transformed him into. What he fears, what Ramsay has instilled in him, is that the old Theon is dead and gone and has no resting place. He does not belong in the crypts, and so is doomed to wander the earth. Quote, there are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. And that's fitting because the whole idea of a ghost is a spirit that can't rest. And then finally, there's Jon, caught in between as he so often is. You could argue that his relationship to the crypts, and thus Winterfell as a whole, is half Bran's and half Theon's. Not insider nor outsider, but both and neither. Unlike Theon, he doesn't have the status of violent other keeping him at arm's length from House Stark. Jon was not brought to Winterfell as a hostage, nor did he ever claim it for himself. Indeed, he specifically rejected it when offered. But unlike Bran, he's not a true Stark, so the crypts were not built to house his eternal remains. As such, the crypts keep calling to him in his dreams, and yet he is always alone there, seeing the oneness Bran experiences as if from behind glass. A Storm of Swords, Sam 4 I don't even dream of ghosts anymore. All my dreams are of the crypts, of the stone kings on their thrones. Sometimes I hear Rob's voice and my father's, as if they were at a feast. But there's a wall between us, and I know that no place has been set for me. The living have no place at the feasts of the dead. It tore the heart from Sam to hold his silence then. Bran's not dead, John, he wanted to say. Indeed, Bran's not dead, but John, unlike Theon, doesn't know that. As such, he can find no comfort there. No answers, only more questions. Even Theon has a non-Stark identity he can fall back on, one which may prove his post-Reek salvation. A Dance with Dragons, Reek 2. We are Ironborn, he thought with a sudden flash of pride, and for half a heartbeat he was a prince again, Lord Balon's son, the blood of Pike. John has no such consolation, because Ned never made it back to tell his ostensible bastard about his true parentage. Theon at least knows why the Kings of Winter frowned down at him. John has no idea that he's got dragon blood in his veins, or about Rob's will, or how death might change him. 
We have two more short topics regarding two characters that we'll present briefly for your consideration. The two are related, the topics themselves and the characters. Sadly, both of them are dead, and their remains both belong in the crypts, but aren't. Rob's Tomb Though some, perhaps many, will claim Rob Stark's realm and crown were never valid, those people will mostly be in the South. The North remembers, and to the vast majority of those who were his subjects, the young wolf died a king. He was never defeated, and few kings of winter can claim that the direwolf statue guarding their eternal rest was in life a true guardian. The stone carver they find who knew Rob is likely to have known Grey Wind as well, and might make both of their statues. So we can expect that when his likeness is carved and placed in the crypts of Winterfell, it will be as King Rob, not Lord Rob. They'll perhaps have to decide if he belongs on the other side, since it's lords on one and kings on the other, apparently. Perhaps he'd be across from his father instead of beside him. Still, where will his heirs reside? Though his kingdom is gone, it may return. His will may yet be executed, meaning his new kingdom of the north and trident may feature further kings from his family, though not his body. Tales will grow in the telling, the nicknames will get fancier. Imagine a statue of the second king, John, the bastard king, the white wolf, the dragon of the north, or Brandon, the crow king, the green seer king, or Rickon, the wild wolf king, whoever it ends up being. <laughs> Ned's Bones Though Bran and Rickon dreamt that their father made it back to the crypts, his physical remains have not, and a certain Lady of Barrowton wants to keep it that way. She wants Lord Eddard's bones fed to her dogs instead of interred in his tomb. Lady Dustin's pain and desire for revenge may be in part rooted in the hypocrisy of it all. The North remembers? Really. Lyanna Stark, who died at the Tower of Joy, yeah, she gets a tomb, even though she's not supposed to even get a statue, but did. But her husband, Lord Dustin, an actual lord? His bones are forever in Dorn. The words are the North remembers, but it seems they only remember Starks, right? I mean, I'm just guessing at what her attitude might be, since she's clearly bitter. But Ned's bones were given to the Silent Sisters quite a while ago. Catelyn sees them at River Run and asks the Silent Sisters to take them to Winterfell. She sends Hallis Mollen with them, a capable man who has a penchant for stating the obvious. This task saved his life as it meant he wasn't there for the Red Wedding, since this all happened back in A Clash of Kings. Isn't that odd, though? A clash of kings. And by a dance with dragons, Lady Dustin says her people watching for them, the bones that is, to emerge from the neck are still waiting and watching. Now, a large portion of the delay can be explained by the easy fact that the Ironborn took Moat Kaelin during a clash of kings, so Ned's bones were probably held up for a while. They couldn't get through. And where might they wait in the meantime? Who made life hell for the Ironborn? Who did Roos Bolton consider enough of a threat to have someone else wear his armor as a decoy when he himself was passing through the neck? None other than Jojen and Mira's people, the Kranigmen, with their sneaky poison arrows and such. So our best guess is that Ned's bones are currently with Howland Reed, who should also know of Rob's will by now. Another great example of George R. R. Martin managing several plots at once, with stories within stories and plots within plots, and yet another connection to the Crypts of Winterfell. Lots of people to thank for this episode, as usual. 
Thanks to Ashea for all the video work, the production, and a lot of other things that happened behind the scenes that we couldn't possibly mention all of. Thanks for the writing help from Rainey's Targaryen and Emmett Booth, a.k.a. Poor Quentin. Female voices for this episode were done by McCall Schick of the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast, as well as Hypable.com. The section headers were done by Martin Lewis of Echoes of Ice and Fire. The male voices were done by me. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro and for the maps that you see behind me. Check him out at claradox.com. That's claradox with a K. You can find the link in our video description. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the music. For a fuller treatment on Bale the Bard and his story and legend and all the associated knowledge around it, I highly recommend Radio Westeros' episode 34, Myths and Legends of the North. It's near the end of that episode. For more thoughts and especially theories on the Crypts of Winterfell, check out the recent episode by Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast, who had Joe Magician from the Maester Monthly podcast and Reddit on as a guest where they discussed a wide variety of possibilities. Good stuff. Thanks to anyone who has given a donation to History of Westeros. Not everyone wants to use Patreon. If you want to do a regular donation, just go to historyofwesteros.com and click on the Donate button, which will give you a PayPal link. If you do want to use Patreon, well, we're thankful for that, too. So here's a list of a large number of the people that make our show possible through their continuing support on Patreon. There's the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. There's Lady Suzanne Sinistral, the learned, holder of the left-handed Valyrian shears called Penance and Hand of the Beard. There's Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire and Warden of the West, host of the Two Wage War podcast. Highly recommended. Lord George Stormchill the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. Charlotte Oster is Corsair Queen of the Western Shivering Sea, commander of the Briny Fleet, whose flagship is the barnacle-encrusted violet-hulled Mercenaria. She carries the nacre-inlaid shucking blade Crasslover. The Corsair Queen and the King of the Stepstones and Narrow Sea have been at war, but recently they've conducted a short-term peace agreement. Both sides appear to be using this peace agreement to marshal their strength. Lord James Tuttle has sent an expeditionary force north of Essos, while the Corsair Queen Charlotte Oster has sent her fleet south to places like the Summer Islands and perhaps Athorios. Thanks to Sir Valentin of House to Chen, creator of the Game of Predictions free Game of Thrones futures market, a link is on our website. Thanks to our small council, Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers, Grand Maester Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel, Lord Robert Jacobs, Master of Coin, and Rosie the Clever, Master of Laws. The Queen's High Council consists of Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles, and Mistress of Ships. Lady Mai, Emerald Eyes, Voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whisperers. Elia of Upstate is Master of Coin. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth is Middle Daughter of Lyanna Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. And Bold Betha of House Copperhook, Stillwaters Run Deep, she's Master of Laws. Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. 
Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye and Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual-wielding, glorious morning, and little light-wise. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, strength and courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to house Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn and Lord of Blue Spring. Nevesa the Twin-Hearted is Suspected Skin Changer, is holder of Castle Carahelm. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our King's Guard is led by the Smiling Wolves, Lord Commander Stephen Stark, cartographer of kings who earned a white cloak through wisdom and learning, as much as skill at arms. Sir Andrew the Dragonseed Prophet is longest tenured white sword. Sir Dolorous D, Sir Garen the Red, Knight of the Forums. Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, Sir Brian, the Bastard of the Riverlands, and Sir Tad the Untitled round out our Kingsguard. Our Queensguard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hayma Helmont, the Sellsword Sentinel, Lady Nymeria of House Seapertle, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Doom, I Must Not Fear, Fear is the Mind Killer, Jane Grey, Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, and Sir Eric Redbeard Odinson, wielder of Tempest, a monstrous warhammer. Our Beard Guards commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden. Sir Joshua Oakhart is the White Oak. Lady Rita of the Coppermane is the Unbound, Dance the Fervor. Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, is Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty. And Michonne the Melodious is Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters. And also, the History of Westeros Night's Watch. Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort is avenging memory of Brave Danny and taking the lead. Also, First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Green Shield. First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, and First Steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Some other recent patrons who have signed on include Shane of House Holonomy, Shepherd of Gerbys, Linnea of Ashai, called Firepalm, Sir Christopher of House Gavigan, Dread Are Coming, Sir Larry of House Legion, Strength in Numbers, Lady Mage, the Scholar, Sir Dundee of House Outback, wielder of the Great Knife Crocodile Tooth, Sir James Golden Chain of House Fetters, and Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. And that's all for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening, and Valar Reredis.